Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 248th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that is looking forward to a brighter, more productive, and more caring 2021 with all of you beautiful people out there. So for the meantime, please wear a mask and be extra kind to one another. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening. I see you've opted for a more uh, positive intro. Trying to, trying to maneuver, trying to find the, the right message sure i i I can at least appreciate the spirit if perhaps uh be dubious of the likelihood (laughs) (laughs) glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you our show is produced by mtgprice.com the leading mtg finance community sign up today mtgprice.com to track your specs chat on discord and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com. Save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Boy, this weekend would have been a good time to follow our shill-like directions and head on over to Cool Stuff. They had some pretty good sales on Double Master singles, on uh, Double Masters booster boxes, and there was a blowout sale on Zendikar uh, Rising collector boosters that were, I think, under 170 with uh, the five percent off code, which is real nice. I oh, I'm I missed that because I was checking and they had um, the Double Masters on sale, which I was really close to grabbing a box, but ended up not. Uh, but yeah, there were some good prices. You did pick up some singles, there. though, yes? I did. I did pick up some singles. I, to be honest, I'm not even sure how much of a discount from Black Friday that was. It was just seemed like a good time to go after some of them. And they were Double Master singles. Yep. All right. And uh, I guess we've got the usual segments today, I would imagine. But we also have Collector's Corner, where we're going to have Joshua Kraus, uh, pro trader and fellow business owner, who runs the OMA uh OriginalMagicArt.store, um, a business built around the art and culture of Magic Gathering. He will be joining us later on to talk about uh, his uh, past, present, and future, I suppose, in, uh, in the Magic business world and uh, give us a slightly different sl- take on MTG Finance than our usual fare. Yeah, the that'll be interesting. I don't see myself getting into the investing side of magic art anytime soon, but I imagine that magic art in general is sort of a black box for a lot of people, especially because prices are rarely discussed online. Um, you know, the those sale they know people know that art sold, but they don't know prices or anything. So some of our listeners might be interested to start to get a sense of that. Uh, also, I bet I bet we can surprise at least ten or twenty people in this week's cast with how expensive it costs to frame things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Josh certainly has pretty deep people. knowledge on all of those, 
uh, tangents in the magic art world. Uh, and then his store is more built around accessible products um, that dip into magic art. So tokens, play mats. Uh, they launched something recently called... Uh, I want to get the language here right. The Foglio Portfolio, uh, which has a whole bunch of oh. old school magic art uh, put together in limited edition play mats and prints that I'm sure is he'll it, be happy to talk about. Is it all Phil Foglio stuff? And his wife, I want to say. Uh, well, his cousin does art, but because the original—no, uh, not the original—Boon uh, of something, they both did. They both did artwork on that one. I didn't think it was his sister. I thought it was his cousin. But I'm matter. sure Joshua will fill us in once we get there. Yeah. But for now, off the top, we've got uh, metagame week and review to dive in on. Yeah, that is true. The other segments our listeners will be in the dark on since we didn't read them out. <laughs> well, segment two, the top paper movers. We're going to go through the magic online movers of the week. Segment three is the paper cards to watch, including a pro trader member pick. And then we'll get on to Josh. You're uh, you're drumming me out of a job here. <laughs> Just mixing things up, keeping people on their toes. Don't want them to get I... too used to our, our patter. Yeah, for four years, we got to throw them a curveball and not tell them what segment two is going to be. They'll never figure um, the it first out. Thing I, yeah, the first thing I notice uh, here in this Pioneer is the second place Salti Wilderness Reclamation, um, which is interesting. I don't. I feel like we haven't seen quite as much of that in Pioneer as we have in Modern. Um, and they're jumping right in there with the addition of the Blood Chief's Thirst, uh, which I thought was seems relatively new. There's all sorts of cards from 2020 in this deck. You got... Uh, three Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath, two Blood Chief's Thirst, two Extinction Event out of Ikoria. You've got uh, two Thassa's Intervention out of Theros Beyond Death, Shark Typhoons, four of those from Ikoria as well. Um, Castle Lockwain and Vantress from the end of 2019 in Eldraine, along with Fabled Passages. So, yeah, the. Uh, Recent cards in Magic the Gathering seem to be doing a lot of work. Uh, but first place in the Pioneer Challenge uh, from, this was November 29th, was Mono Red. Um, the only thing that f- jumped out at me there was four Ramanap Ruins in the land base, uh, Spikefield Hazard, uh, Flipland Uncommon, and a Shatter Skull Smashing Mythic Red DFC Flip. Uh, and then third place, this gets, this gets pretty spicy, not because we haven't seen five-color Niv-Mizzet in both Pioneer and Modern multiple times this year, but just a cute little thing they've added. And this is one of those lists that keeps evolving uh, week over week. Two Nahiri the Harbinger. We used to see this in Modern a while back, and they try to put Big Eldrazi into play with it because Nahiri's <clears throat> minus eight is search your library for an artifact or creature card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. It gains haste. Return it to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. Well, that's real cute with Niv-Mizzet Reborn because Niv-Mizzet's trigger is on entering the battlefield, not being cast. So Nahiri can drop him into play. You draw a, a fresh grip of cards, presumably, anywhere from 3 to 10, I suppose, depending on what's, what's left in your deck. And then it's going to go back 
it gets haste, right? So you can attack with it right away, hit, hit them upside the head for six, then put it back in your hand and cast it again the next turn and draw a fresh grip. Yeah, it does work like that, which is pretty darn spicy. It does make you wonder, like, tutoring up Emrakul and just attacking, I guess, isn't as good as tutoring up Niv-Mizzet, which is sort of odd because it's a lot of work to ultimate Nahiri. Like, you know, it's a, it's a three-turn ultimate with no attacks and no minuses. So that doesn't occur too frequently. Um, but sure, I guess. Uh, I wonder how often that thing goes and gets just in like an Omnath. Like they just ultimate Nahiri for like Omnath or like something really dumb like Fae of Wishes. Well, I mean, at minimum with Omnath, <clears throat> you're drawing a card off that exchange. And you could also do it with Uro to get an Uro in the yard. Um, mm -hmm. get his trigger, and then he goes away right away. But um, I, I, I don't think you can really go for the Eldrazi because then you have to go commit to more Nahiris because the rest of this deck hangs together whether or not Nahiri shows up, but Nahiri works a lot better um, if you can go get a Niv and put it into play when there's only two copies. I mean, yeah, you, could, you can make the point that this is already a, uh, I'm pretty sure... 60 card deck playing 28 lands yeah so you're gonna get there uh land count and you want you do have land planeswalker creature sorcery instant you've got five creature types in the deck so that reduces the cost of promise to end right there since you're like likely likely to hit all five it wouldn't be hard to toss an enchantment in the deck somewhere um or an artifact to make the whatever i forget the mechanic what it's called um, to reduce the cost of Emrakul. I don't know. be interesting to see them merge that. But it, honestly, the deck probably doesn't really need it. So Well, and it's not. A, it also wouldn't be a card you could ever put in your hand because it wouldn't include one of the color combinations. Right. I mean, it's possible that we're looking at this and going, oh, the ultimate Nahiri to get Nivm is it. And really, it's just like, ah, we needed a good Boros card, and it turns out Nahiri fills a slot that the deck was kind of missing because you get to exile crap with her. Well, the other thing that's nice is that her plus two is a looting effect um, that if you got 28 lands in your deck, sometimes you get land locked in hand and you want to ditch a land and get some get some action. Um, and you need to do that twice to get to her minus eight. So, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm wondering if it's just if, it, if the <clears throat> ultimate is just a little bit of gravy and that's not really the whole point of it all. So then for the rest of this uh, top eight, you've got another mono red in fourth, Boros Burn with the white, slight white variant in fifth, four color Omnath in sixth, most notable for using three Genesis Ultimatum, uh, which was a pick on cast a while back, and two Ugin Spirit Dragon. Uh, spicy little additions to that list. Mm-hmm. The Genesis Ultimatum is fun. Both Niv Mizzet stack play in the tuning area. Huh? We saw the I Genesis Ultimatums first in Standard, and then we, we have seen them earlier this season in Pioneer decks, but they've faded out for a bit, and here they are back. Um, and then the five color Niv build with Tunahiri was also in seventh, so third and seventh in the top eight. Um, so looks like a, a consistent choice among pilots. And then Mono Black in eighth, this is the aggro build that with uh, all the same cards we've seen for ages. Now, over in the Modern Challenge from November 30th, we have Mono Red and First, notable because it's using Obosh in the board. Uh, the If you've forgotten, the companion requirement there is that all your spells are odd casting costs. So, yet another companion still rearing its head despite the rules change. Oh, yeah, I don't think they're going away anytime soon. 
Blue Black Mill in second has to be the spiciest list in the Modern Challenge. Um, we've seen ver versions of this before, but this is further confirmation that, you know, Mill is just better positioned or better because now they have both Ruin Crab and Hedron Crab and they use Lurus out of the sideboard to be able to bring those back into play if somebody manages to kill them and slow them down. And then we're seeing the four Maddening Cacophony set up shop as a permanent four of in this deck, pushing out, uh, what's the mill eight card that was there, or the mill 10 Glim card that was there forever? Glimpse, I think. Yeah, so that's just kicked out of the list permanently, it looks like, which was a, it's going to be sad times for anybody that was holding on to those, hoping they were going to go somewhere. Um, and the Maddening Cacophony Foil Extended Arts that we told people to buy just from a collector perspective a while back, they just look better and better. I don't know what they're sitting at right now, but I would imagine it's still pretty low. Uh, would seem to be $3 if uh, Scryfall is relieved. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, 3 bucks. There's 70 results. That could be a decent little sleeper pick. Yep. All right. Uh, so... Continuing on with the rest of that top eight, you've got the other super spicy deck uh, in third place, Esper Emery Combo. And this is built around four Arayo, Arayo? I'm going to go with Arayo from KT, <clears throat> no, not from KTK, from Champions of Kamigawa. Uh, and four Emery with four Teferi to protect the whole thing. So the deck is four Teferi Time Raveler, four Emery Lurker of the Lock, four Arayo Soratami Ascendant, four Monastery Mentor, one Spellskite, one Tassiger the Golden Fang. Haven't seen that in a while. Three Unearth to bring back piece, creature pieces that you need to be going off with, either Emery or Arayo. Four Repeal, three Thought Scour, one Ether Spellbomb, two Engineered Explosives, four Mishra's Bauble, four Mox Amber, one Soul Guide Lantern, 19 lands, and a Lurus of the Dream Den. The uh, the Ryo here is some is some throwback some throwback shit. That is uh, a card we have not seen in modern in a while. Uh, and I remember this was I am not the only person who have tried to make this card work. That's for sure. And it's interesting to see it finally show up again. I mean, the card's so powerful in EDH, it's banned because it's trivial to get four turns cast and then just start. I mean, four spells cast in a turn and then just start countering the first spell every opponent plays. <laughs> That's real ugly. Yeah, that is a very obnoxious card. Honestly, that could probably get unbanned in EDH. Like, it's not excessively powerful, but it sure is annoying. Yeah, but if they don't have enchantment kill, then this it's just silly. Well, I'm not. I'm not arguing it wouldn't be effective at what it does. Uh, in any case, this is. Uh, it's interesting to see this rear its head again in modern. I wonder if this is a. There's uh, a word I'm looking for. Outlier. Mm-hmm. Entirely possible. <clears throat> Entirely possible there's one pilot on Magic Online running this thing, but if they show up enough, then it it might catch fire. I don't know how consistently this deck is able to go off, but it looks pretty tight, this list. Um, and there's not a tremendous amount of Arayo lying around. They're only about six bucks. So if it ever was to take off, those would go to the moon. They'd be 20 to 30 in a heartbeat. And I also wonder whether this is time, This is enough to keep an eye on Emery Lurker of the Lock Foil Extended Arts, because they're hanging out there around 40 bucks, but there's not tremendously deep inventory. And I remember, the f I think the first copies I bought of that were 60 to 65, which was clearly early. 
but 40 looks a lot later looks a lot better yeah yeah that still seems like a strong play Moving right along, we've got Eldrazi Tron in fourth. Black red mid-range is also fairly spicy. This one's got, uh, let's see here, three Liliana the Veil, three Dark Confidant. Haven't seen that for a little while in modern. Three Croxa, Titan of Death's Hunger, three Lightning Skelemental. People were trying to make Skelemental decks last summer, and then they dropped off the face of the planet. Now it's back in this list. Three Magmatic Channeler, which I think in the same episode that we mentioned Maddening Cacophony, we also talked about Magmatic Channeler foil extended arts being too cheap. I think they were down to under $2 at one point. Uh, here it is, top eighting a modern league, or modern challenge, sorry. Four Season Pyromancer out of Modern Horizons, two Blood Chiefs Thirst, four Inquisition of Kozilek, three Thoughtseize, three Unearth, Unearth and two of the top eight lists. One Cling to Dust, two Fatal Push, three Lightning Bolt, and 23 Lands. Black, red, mid-range with a whole pile of cards nobody else seems to want to play. <laughs> well, that's how I would describe black, red, yes. Remember when Dark Confidant got a new extended art or borderless extended art? Extended art and nobody cared. <laughs> that's a shame. Yep. Except that's apparently shame. it's still playable. Uh, blue, red, kiki combo. Uh, another throwback for modern and top eight here. And then Oops All Spells uh, and Amulet Titan uh, with our beloved four Dryad of the Elysian Grove rounding out the top eight. It's like, uh, you know how, I don't, I don't know if this is a thing in Canada, but in America, in America, you frequently, America uh, everyone goes home for Thanksgiving and the night before Thanksgiving is a huge bar night because everyone goes out and sees all their old pals who also came home for Thanksgiving. And apparently, uh, this week on Moto, it was everyone goes home and sees their old modern decks because <laughs> it is nothing but old strategies that everyone remembers from six years ago. Yeah, a mixture of, of the old and new here for sure. Um, moving on over to the top paper movers, there's lots of action, but separating the single signal from the noise... Uh, really distilled down the list for me. Uh, Mystical Tutor out of EMA foils from 36 to 50. Uh, $14 gain, about 40%. Uh, I think this was a call of yours on cast not too long ago, yeah? Yeah, I'm trying to look it up right now, but I'm pretty sure Mystical Tutor... Nope, that's not how you spell that card. Uh, yes, I picked the EMA foil for 33 to 55 uh, four weeks ago. Yeah, well on your way. Uh, drying up, drying up. Final Fortune and uh, Last Chance, both making moves on the back of Obeka. Final Fortune, Mirage version from 20 to 40, 100% gains. Uh, Last Chance from the starting 99 set is in theory, like supposedly $200, but not really. It's just sold out. So the last remaining copy posted is that price. And if anybody wants one, that's the, the price they're going to have to negotiate from. But realistically speaking, I don't see people paying... Very many people paying prices over, you know, $80 for a card that their Obeka deck can live without. I would be shocked. Yeah. If anyone paid, like, I just shocked if anyone paid any sort of money, real money for that card. Muddle the Mixture uh, has seen two reprintings in Commander decks, <clears throat> but never a, a second foil since the original Ravnica block printing. So it's, in theory, gone from 30 to last price posted about 70 on TCG, and it's basically just effectively sold out. 
thing about this card is it's in 19,000 reported EDH decks. So if you can track down a reasonably priced copy of the foil and it manages to dodge a reprint for a little while, you'd be in good shape. And given that it has transmute as a mechanic on it, which I don't... Which which is the reason that it, ex- it gets played for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Well, for instance, in Obeka, you could use it to go find your final fortune and last chance. Yeah. I think it's basically a, like... I have cards that are integral to my deck, but I can't make them my commander. So I'm going to play this to make sure I can get them. Yeah, basically it lets you search up a two-casting cost spell of some sort. Um, yeah. But yeah, foil, foils are hard to come by and quite old. So if you can find one sitting around in a binder or get them in Europe or something, you're in good shape. Uh, and I just want to indicate that I, I you should dig these out and sell them if you have them. But I would under no circumstances spec on this card because this is going to show up in like the common or uncommon slot in Modern Horizons 2 or something like that. And that'll be it. It'll be $1.50 until the end of time. Yeah, if they bring back Transmute somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you figure it's probably only a matter of time. Like they could toss it in, in Modern Horizons 2 or something like that. It wouldn't be that hard for them. See, see one of the situations where I don't expect them to make things a priority, like a rep- make something a priority reprint, is when they've already given it to you recently, they just haven't given you the foil. And that's the case here, where they've already given us two printings in recent memory, and they're dirt cheap in non-foil. It's just the foils that are special I, and hard to come by. I'm, I'm sorry, I muddled the mixture? Yeah. Muddled the mixture has not been reprinted. I think it's been in it's in two commander decks now. Nope. It is only Ravnica. Let me take a look. This is for our listeners an example of concrete learning, where I can tell James that I've looked up the card and it is only in Ravnica, but he has to go type it in himself to verify. But that's okay because I'm also a concrete learner, so I can't give him a hard time about it. Because <laughs> I felt certain that I had looked this up before the cast and that I had noted that it was in two other commander decks. So my apologies, it is only in yeah. Ravnica. Uh, so what are the? I would have. That must mean that also expected. That, that must mean that the near mint copies are not dirt cheap, and in fact, that's correct. They're about five bucks for a common. So uh, pull your muddle of mixtures out of your old Ravnica binder. <laughs> get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the I, truth I of, if, eventually here. I don't know if BSB has done this on Breaking Bulk before. But, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Seems like a good one. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's come up. It seems like exactly Doug's speed. Um, yeah. All right. So moving right along to top Magic Online movers of the week. Thassa's Oracle out of Theros Beyond Death. Dollar... 1.73 tickets, 2.48 tickets, probably on the back of a ro- being a bigger roomy card in EDH, and a roomy being one of the more popular uh, com- new commanders out of Commander uh, Legends. Emery Lurker of the Lock, of course, no big surprise. See it moving up from 0.6-something ticks to 0.94 on the back of that Esper combo deck in Modern. Vito Thorn of the Dusk Rose out of Core 21, moving from 0.57 to 0.94, 65% gains, probably on the back of... Uh, a combination of being a solid card in Lisa Shroud of Dusk for EDH out of Commander Legends, <clears throat> and a white-black standard list that's been making the rounds uh, on Magic Online. Kazandu Mammoth is getting heavy standard play in a couple of different decks that run green cards, and so it's gone from 0.14 to 0.28 as, I guess, Zendikar Rising draft probably fades, uh, and people pick up the vintage draft gauntlet for the season. 
Ashiok Nightmare Muse at Atheris Beyond Death from $03 to $215 on the back of a Demir control deck that is doing very well in standard. That's a double up if you were in early on that one. Nice. It's always a nice little uh, payoff. All right. Speeding through the segments this week. <laughs> um, very unlike us. So paper cards to watch. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of curveballs here. How about... People in the Discord this weekend were asking, what are some good ideas to spend Card Kingdom credit on? And then I remembered, yeah, I have some Card Kingdom credit. And I was looking to, I was sitting on about five or 600 of it and was looking to just wait till I submitted my next buy list so I, I would have two or 3,000 or something and then go get something really juicy. But then I realized I'm hopelessly behind in preparing all of that. So it could be anywhere from weeks to months until I get my act together and finally submit. In which case, I may as well go look for some targets for people and pick some stuff up. Now, one of the things I found was was especially tasty. What I usually tell people is if you're trying to uh, leverage Card Kingdom buy list exits via credit, you want to grab something that is either blue chip and very stable in the sense that it is a premium card that collectors will want that has a low chance of reprint or has just seen a reprint for perhaps something like a Judge Foil and might have further upside if it doesn't at least stay stable. And in doing so, you can leverage a 30% credit bonus minus, say, 15% fees and come out ahead versus taking the cash. Because if something is overpriced, if you're buying a $13 card from Card Kingdom um, that would be $10 on TCG, then you might as well just take the cash because it gives you much more flexibility. So... Mm -hmm. All of that being said, Grimlock, Dinobot Leader, was a Hasbrocon <laughs> back before COVID, children. There were these things. Was, there was one of those, right? Yeah. Or was there two? Uh, two, I think. Um, hmm. Back before COVID, children, there was a thing called conferences, where other large groups of human beings <laughs> gathered <laughs> in an extremely dangerous room that might transmit viruses. <laughs> Back, back before COVID, uh, there was a thing called cons where people that love anime or love dressing up as foxes would get together and do unspeakable things in hotel rooms. Sure. <laughs> that too, I suppose. Uh, bottom line, Grimlock is like 170, 180. Uh, very short supply on TCG player. Uh, very, very popular Transformers character for people that don't don't follow that, that uh, segment of the collectibles world. Transformers is a multi-generational property, even more so than Magic the Gathering. Isn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Just had a super hit uh, cartoon on Netflix. And yeah, Grimlock is pretty hard to come by as is. And Card Kingdom, most importantly, had no premium on the card. In fact, they still show eight copies in stock at 170 after I bought a few with credit, which means that they probably have more like, you know, 10, 15, 20, or 30 of them, but TCG only has like 10 copies posted or something. That buyer, the, the CK buyer went in on those uh, Hascon sets when they came yep, out, huh? probably. Also, I am very disappointed that there was no uh, uh, honorary comic book full art promo for Grimlock when Ikoria did their release. They're a booster pack. They're collector's boosters. It was a dinosaur, right? We should have gotten the comic book art with the rest of the Ikoria dinosaurs. He's a flip card, which is interesting because there's lots of flip action going on, and he may end up with some weird interactions. 
He's uh, a silver bordered card, but depending on the casualness of your playgroup, you might be able to get away with uh, tabling him as a commander. He gives dinosaurs, vehicles, and other transformer creatures you control plus two plus zero. Some of those bonuses are going to be more useful than others in our game. And then for two, you can flip him and turn him into an 8-8 trample uh, creature. And then for two, you can flip him back. Now, the flipping costs come with a bonus cost. You have to transform a transformer <laughs> to do it. So it's very much an uncard, but you could make some crazy dinosaur vehicle deck that could be miles of fun if you're more of a beer and beer and laughs kind of EDH group. Yeah, definitely a deck for those of us who, I shouldn't say those of us, for those people that get a kick out of the very thematic decks. Not my speed, but uh, I appreciate why people like them. And, um, and more to the point, they're never going to reprint this. Yeah. No chance. Yeah. Even if they give us a Transformer set in 2024 or something, very unlikely that this specific card is printed there. And you're going to be in and out of this thing way before that. Yeah, hard to imagine you ever see the Grimlock promo again. Yeah. Like that's, it's just going to be like a $300 promo. And if you want one, you're going to fork over for it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I like what we're looking at here for sure. Um, Also worth noting, these are not cheaper in Europe. Hascon was in the U.S. Exporting those sets was not cheap. Not very many European vendors would have bothered, and there are two copies or something listed on card market for even more money. I think two hundred plus. Okay, yeah, I I think I think treating this as a very solid way to exit store credit from CK is an excellent choice. Uh, just because, or wait, yes, I see. Okay, sorry using this as a way to convert things into CK credit, it's totally a valid way to go. Well, to get maximum value out of your CK credit by getting something below retail instead of above, which is the golden grail of buy listening. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I do this occasionally myself. Um, and I think this is a cool card to have to do it with, if only because it stands to serve you reasonably well in the long term if you decide to kind of hang on to it and see what you can play with. Because it's just, you know, the growth on it's not going to be fast, but it's not like you're, again, like we said, you're going to see it again. And, and they, the, especially given the buy list challenges for at least the next nine months, it's not like these are ever going to flood into any vendor's hands. So Card Kingdom's got however many copies they purchased whenever they purchased them in bulk like when they bought a bunch of sets from Hascon. And once those are all gone, there will be no further supply. Yeah, and I mean, these are Hascon promo. It, like, even if conventions came back roaring next month, there's not going to be that many of these that could possibly show up because there just simply aren't that many. Like, it's not a, a common card. Now, it is worth noting that you can get the three-pack uh, promo box that this came in with a nerf card, which is probably mostly pointless, and then a D&D sword card um, that might be relevant. That one might catch a reprint in that D&D set coming up this summer. Hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i reluctant to expect them to ever reprint these types of promotional cards. Like, where would they put the D&D sword? In the D&D set. But like, isn't the, the, the did you read the rule text on that sword? 
it says equipped creature gets plus two plus two and has protection from rogues and from clerics whenever equipped creature deals combat damage to a player create a four four gold dragon creature token with flying and roll a d20 if you roll a 20 repeat this process yeah i i, I don't think this is coming back in any in a standard legal magic. dnd set and and i this i this i don't think this card can get really get printed in black border like like it could technically and it's it's slightly more likely than Grimlock, but neither of them seem likely. It, it is it is very on the nose. We didn't mention it, but the name of the sword is Sword of Dungeons and Dragons, which is yeah. more uh, self awareness than I would expect the black bordered marketing team to allow. Yeah, that seems like a, a hard sell for sure. In which case, if you believe it's not going to get reprinted, this thing goes for 55 and climbing pretty quickly to 75 on TCG right now. And you can get those sets for less than the combined cost of a Grimlock and a sword uh, on eBay. Yeah, I mean, frankly, that does seem like it might be worth checking out Uh because you've got the D&D set coming up. This is likely to get a little bit of attention. Um, Grimlock, you know, if you're picking it up, if you can convert that into cash at CK for, you know, essentially what you paid, and then you get the nerf card out of it for free, maybe, maybe not. Nah. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a bad way to go. To just kind of sideways spec on both of them. Just taking a quick look here to see what the lowest possible price in a bin is. But why don't you start talking us up about your first card? Sure. So I was browsing, uh, once again, EDH Rock, something I do pretty regularly as far as the show goes. Um, and I found a card that surprised me <clears throat> uh, in the fact that we haven't really gotten an, any more foils, which is uh, Gonti, Lord of Luxury. A card that I wasn't expecting to be particularly popular when it released has proven me wrong. It is in uh, 14,000 EDH Rock decks now, making it something like the seventh most popular card in Kaladesh, or sorry, the 10th most popular card in Kaladesh behind uh, four lands. <clears throat> so the one, two, three, four, five, six most popular non-land card out of Kaladesh. Uh, and that's by percentage. It's actually like second based on number of played copies. Um, it's been reprinted like it has a total of like seven printings, but only three of them are foil. And most recently was um, the non-foil mystery booster printing. <clears throat> uh, there are 30 total vendors uh, for foil copies between the pack foil and the pre-release or and the promo pack foil there's also the pre-release foils but those are, are completely sold out uh you'll pay about 450 on the low end to get in on the foil gondis here but with the quantity that we're looking at i think you can get in it 450 ish you know five dollars hang out and sell them for between 10 and 15 in the next several months probably somewhere next year well it's december next year is a pretty easy call but somewhere next year i think you can sell these for over ten dollars yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. Um, the card can can do a lot of work. Uh, I mean, Doug's trashed Gaunty deck is not going to want a copy, but there are plenty of people that are probably attached to their Gaunty decks enough to want to upgrade to a foil now or later. I don't see any product on the horizon this year that is likely to give us foils of this card, so they're looking relatively safe for a while. Yeah, and it's it's not even that it's popular as a commander. It's, it's a 99 card. popular index. Yeah. yeah, it's a 99, which which expands the profile for who would want it much more so mm -hmm. than if I was trying to sell this to you as a commander. Yeah, I'm not excited about Sakashima because 
of his role as commander. It's much more about the fact that he can slide into a bunch of other decks. Yeah. Uh, all right, I think that one's cool. Um, I was just looking up the uh, Hazcon set. It looks like the you basically get the nerf card for free if you buy a set on TCG Player because it's currently going for about two thirty over in Europe. By the time you get it over here, it's probably going to be about the same two twenty two thirty. eBay is actually higher, three hundred plus, um, and I suspect that's where that set's headed. So, if you're interested in the set that the D and D sword or the Grimlock, time is now. I think. Yeah, I'm, I might go see if I can score some of those swords cheap somewhere myself. I like that outlook. So continuing on with my theme of off-brand promos this week, how about Nightmare Moon, the My Little Pony card? What does it do? Who mm. cares? There are tons of pony lovers and bronies out there. Nightmare Moon is currently nearly sold out on TCG Player under $100. CK CK covers 43 in credit, and you can get them for about 45 to 50 in the EU on card market. I would imagine that if you snap those off in the 45 to 50 range in Europe and plan to out them at closer to 80 to 85 in the US this year, you'd probably do it without breathing too hard. That's a very popular property, and it's going to appeal to a very specific subset of the addressable market. So I wouldn't want to have 300 of these, but I would certainly be happy to have a small handful. Uh, I mean, I have to disagree on principle. Like, uh, just and just, I'm not. What's wrong with ponies? Cannot What's wrong with ponies, advocate. Travis? Remember my little comment about cons and people doing unspeakable things, and how I did not expect that to be like uh, episode relevant within ten minutes. I, I let Alara watch an episode of My Little Pony recently, and the modern version is actually pretty fine, even for. Uh, post-feminist young women i oh i don't doubt that i mean that's why the show got really popular right because it was written by a woman who wanted to make a show that families could watch with their kids and everyone could enjoy it so i have no issue with that but it's like final fantasy it's been made war and warhammer to well less so warhammer but it's been made worse by the people who are fans of it but no one's here to hear me soapbox about my little pony it's irrelevant uh yeah i mean if it's a flip play that seems good but um I feel. I also feel like the My Little Pony era is pretty over. So I don't know if you're going to get more demand for this anytime no soon. No way, Jose. Although if they ever, no way, Jose. Will. That's a multi generational brand too. It's not going anywhere. Well, I don't. It's not that My Little Pony is gone forever. It's that the you know the hype cycle around that generation is certainly waned. However, if they announce a new series. That certainly spikes it. I'm not even sure it's not ongoing. I don't think that I don't think the most recent show was over, but I'd have to double check. Um, there's certainly still Hasbro is all about churning out My Little Pony products. So, and every con I've ever gone to has had some kind of pony exclusive. And they've I've every single time I've had My Little Pony exclusives from San Diego Comic Con or something up here for Fan Expo, they've been gone day one, like Thursday afternoon when the early like access starts. Some person comes down the line going hey who's got my little pony stuff and i'm like yep right here and then boom here's 150 for whatever the thing was on the shelf they don't even really care what the price is they just want it um so i I think that fandom's alive and well may as well wrap up my pick with my third one which is connected the set that the nightmare moon comes out of is called ponies the galloping and those you don't get in europe as cheaply you can get them on ebay around a hundred bucks 
And I would imagine 100, 150 on those is going to be equally a no-brainer. Well, as with Grimlock, they are not going to reprint these specific cards ever again. Okay, they're there for people who want them. What's your it's What's fine. your second pick? It's fine. Ugh. Uh, just taste out of my mouth. Um, I was I stumbled upon a card you've spoken about before, but we're approaching it from slightly different angles. Uh, Shadow Spear, the Theros um, promo copy, the the borderless fo- borderless foil Shadow Spear from Theros Beyond Collector Boosters. Um, currently about thirty three dollars. Uh, there it is in thirteen over thirteen thousand EDA truck decks. There are currently seven extended art foils uh, or borderless foils on TCG Player. You know, I'm just gonna say I'm gonna confuse extended art and borderless, and everyone's just gonna have to be aware of that. Um, I checked the price history, and it has not spiked. So the thirty three dollars three thirty three bucks for extended art foils is not a new price it's been hanging out there for a little while um so far it seems like the partners coming out of commander legends the equipment based partners coming out of that set have been fairly popular now that doesn't mean they're going to stay that way forever i'm not saying that it will but um there's definitely it's clear that is an indicator to me that there is still a healthy dose of people who like equipment based commander decks and will continue to be so so there is continued pressure on this relatively new card um, you talked about this card, the non-foil version, nine to eighteen, uh, back in episode two hundred and seven, so forty weeks ago, so ten months ago. We're looking at that was like what February, or um, and it's at twelve dollars now. So you've definitely made some progress there. Not quite the double up, but we're getting there. And we got some time but with, yeah, yeah, yeah. But with seven dollar, you're uh, with seven foil copies. You know, you can buy in at thirty three and hope to flip them at fifty, probably fifty to sixty. I would say as you're out here, and hopefully you can do that. Maybe quarter two, quarter one, quarter two next year. Yeah, I'm totally on board with this because the thing is, it's not even about equipment based commanders. This card is just good whether as long as you have things to equip it to. Because it gets rid of Hexproof and Indestructible, which can both be problems at an EDH table, and it's extremely cheap. It's just one to get it into play. The first thing you equip at minimum gets the plus one, plus one, the trample, the lifelink. All of those things can be key uh, uh, factors in your turn being more successful than it otherwise would have been. And then taking away Hexproof and Indestructible, icing on the cake. We've seen this thing show up in Pioneer, in Modern, and, you know, the... The card is broadly popular, uh, colorless, super cheap in terms of casting cost, just fits in all over the place. You can get foil copies of the extended art in Europe closer to 25 or 26, so you, yeah. another five bucks off. And these are, as you said, these are heading for 40 real quick here in North America, so getting them in the mid-20s is extra special in Europe. I like, yeah, but if you can get these at... 25 bucks in Europe, that seems real juicy. Indeed. Solid pick. It's going to get there. I think that one's a slam dunk. Uh, and we've got a Pro Trader member pick this week. There was plenty of, plenty of good options, really, from the suggestions. But I like this one because it's more or less drained out. There is maybe a double handful available in Europe, and then it's going to be drained out there as well. So it's a 
fast mover pick um, with immediate arbitrage potential. The card in question is Thousand Year Elixir Foils out of Lorwyn. And I think this is actually the card I was thinking of that got two reprintings in Commander decks that I confused with Muddle the Mixture. Uh, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So this one is uh, has only ever had a foil in Lorwyn, and you can get them in and around 40, low 40s in Europe. In the U.S., they're already 60, 70 plus, depending on where you're, where you're looking. Card Kingdom backs this at $48 cash, 62 credit. So if you're snapping these off under 50 in Europe, there's basically zero risk. And then you'd be targeting in a retail out 70 to 80 uh, on the back in theory of a whole pile of new commanders that tap to do things out of commander legends along with a whole bunch of older uh commanders that can also make use of this so just out of commander legends you have around me of the dead tide you have gen arcanum weaver nostro voice of the crags obeka root chronologist mm-hmm. although we established it doesn't really do anything with obeka uh, other than let her tap on the first turn she comes out and then your lock of Scorched Thrash. Um, I think around me there is probably the most exciting because she has no uh, cost to tap. Um, so untapping her for one uh, really lets you go to t- go to town with those uh, encore costs. You're you're missing the appeal of doing it with your lock, which is he's a mono burn commander, and that puts even more mon into your opponent's mono pools. Oh, oh no, I didn't miss that. I just didn't mention it. Well, you you acknowledge it, but I think that's even more interesting than, than around uh, me. what's her name. Arami. Of course, I have clearly shown that I think Yearlock is one of the more interesting commanders from this set, so I'm playing favorites here for sure. Yeah, so that was Poe. He wins a $25 gift certificate with Cool Stuff Inc. And uh, solid pick. It's not. It's going to be hard for anybody to go super deep on this. I would imagine by the time the, you know, the 48-hour lock window for this cast is ex- is uh, extinguished uh, for regular listeners, this one will already be gone. Um, from Europe, but you might want to also poke around in Japan because I suspect the card is not particularly uh, expensive over there as well. Although, <laughs> worth pointing out, Japan is shipping to neither the US nor Canada right now, except for very slow shipping. Oh, do they turn off Canadian shipping? Yeah, well, EM- slow shipping. Yeah, EMS is uh, turned off, so a lot of my stuff is is landlocked over there for a little bit. Yeah, I I um I don't frankly I don't know if you're going to find any of these in Japan either, just because. You know, it's it's Lorwyn, so yeah, it doesn't like, have broad distribution. You're right. It's just very old. Uh, and Lorwyn, for those who are unaware, took place basically at the lowest point of Magic sales in that I think era. In the modern bo- in the modern border, like I don't think there were. I think Eventide was the least selling set in the modern border. Um, I don't think I used that's not the right word, not least, but sold the fewest copies of modern border cards. Uh, so there is not a lot of this to begin with, and it's very old. So and it's been popular in Commander for a long time. Like this is nothing new. Uh, to our, so to our listeners, I think if you can, I think if you can grab them and flip them like that, then you know it's get well. The getting's good, but I wouldn't want to play chicken with this for too long since the price is already relatively high. I don't think this is ever going to be a hundred fifty dollar foil. And we saw this basically happen with Rings of Bright Earth, where, you know, they took forever, but then they eventually printed it. And, uh, you know, the price definitely takes a hit. Uh, the original Lorwyn foils won't get cratered too much because, you know, they'll be the original pack foils, but it's going to take all the wind out of their sails. So my point being, if you can get them and flip them, that's great. But don't look at this too. you know, don't think you're going to buy these for 42 and then sell them for 120. 
Yeah, a thousand year elixir is not necessarily uh, plane specific for magic. So, you know, even the D&D set could, could have it. Although, I have a feeling that some of that stuff that could slip in just from sounding generic enough probably won't just because in the mm-hmm. D&D set, they're going to be looking to stuff it with as many like high profile D&D keywords as possible. <laughs> like mm-hmm. all of the equipment that D&D players would recognize is going to get like stuffed in their hard. So I don't know how much extra space there's going to be for regular old magic cards. They're doing, you know, they're not doing a D&D set. This is their first D&D set in nearly 30 years. They're probably not going back to that well anytime in the near future. They're going to get what they can out of it. So I'm not anticipating too many reprints. Yeah, indeed. All right, so let's move on over to our Collector's Corner segment. We're going to talk to Joshua Krause of Original Magic Art. All righty. Welcome, welcome, Josh Krause of Original Magic Art. How are you, sir? doing well uh fantastic to have you join us on the show in uh for our collector's corner segment this week uh i'm sure you've been uh, a listener lately avidly uh consuming this segment but now you get to join us and talk about your little corner of the magic finance world magic art that's right I'm looking forward to this because I think this is a topic that a lot of our listeners are curious about, um, especially I, you, I know that you deal with a lot of uh, various products, but you know, for me personally, the movement of original magic art itself, I find curious since I know so little about it. Maybe we can uh, start things off, Josh, if you could just give us some background on you know, pre-OMA um sure what how did you get into magic like what what was your your uh pathway as it were that brought you to this point uh so i started with comics then i went to a uh, random sale at my comic shop and they had a a raffle and i won a a limited uh edition starter decks of uh, the star wars card game uh and then randomly i came into the store again and had 20 bucks and i was like hey I've heard Magic is fun. I've never played it, but let's buy some. So I bought uh, Chronicles. I had they were two bucks a pack, so I was like, I can get the most of those. So I had a big bunch of cards. I had nothing, no idea what to do with. Uh, found a few friends that were also playing it, and found I enjoyed it. Um, but my uh, my parents were kind of not too hot on the game, so I uh, I didn't really collect anything till I got into college. But once I got to college. Uh, even though I, I played randomly, um, like uh, Chandelar, and um, I, I knew the basics of the game, uh, but I didn't actually own anything uh, other than those few Chronicles packs. And uh, after college, I just kind of dove in with uh, both feet, um, started playing competitively, and really started collecting, just uh, building up a card base. I uh, got into you know, foils and you know, Japanese foils and all these other wonderful things. And then randomly, um, I was lucky enough to be living in uh, Richmond, Virginia, where they had uh, Star City did their um, back in the days when pre-releases were big events, like one of the biggest events of the every set. Um, they rented out the convention hall in Richmond and uh, they started bringing in artists. And I, I was gainfully employed. I uh, had a little bit of money left in my pocket and uh, randomly came across one of the artist tables and uh, it was Jim Murray and he, uh, this was I think like Dissension pre-release and he had uh, the original for Sky Knight Legionnaire and I just, I remember that being the piece that I was just like, wait, wait, 
I collect magic cards. I love magic cards, but this there's only one of these paintings. That's it. There, there's no more. If I own it and no one else, and I own a little piece of magic history, a little bit of real estate that no one else can own, and just that that idea, uh, seeing it in person, um, kind of triggered me. It triggered the idea that that there's this whole new world of collecting that is more exclusive than. I mean, except for like extremely rare misprints and things like that, there's nothing as exclusively collectible as these, uh, these paintings. And I just, I bought my first piece. So my first piece was, uh, um, the eighth edition sleight of hand. Um, and I bought that for $250 and got it all framed up and it looked great, put it on the wall. And it's like, okay, let's buy more. And, um, I bought a whole bunch of stuff. Then I kind of took a break around 2009 or so, um, met my, uh, girlfriend, now wife, uh, and kind of, you know, my, my, my interest, my interest, uh, uh, went in a different direction for a little while, but I came back to it around 2000, uh, late 2011, early, early 2012. Um, there was a, a website that you may be familiar with called the Manadrain was for people that were really fanatical about the vintage format, which was my format of the choice at the time. Sure. And, um, they had uh, a thread on there started by a guy named Nick Detweiler, who's really uh, foundational in the growth of the vintage uh, community. And he was sharing a piece of art uh, that he was uh, that he had bought. And I was like, well, I have all this, this art on the wall, but I haven't really bought anything recently. Uh, but it kind of kind of got my my interest back in it. And I just that one little thread got me back into collecting. And it was like. It was a perfect time to get into collecting um, because when I was buying pieces um, back in 2006, I think I bought my first piece. Um, pieces were 250 a piece, 400 a piece. <laughs> um, but by the time I got back 2012, this was, you know, people were still recovering from the financial uh, crisis. Um, I mean, I turned down paintings for a hundred bucks several wow, times. Wow, a hundred dollars? Like... <laughs> I mean, two hundred and fifty dollars is cheap, but like a hundred dollars. Sure. Like, well, yeah. Shit. And they, I didn't know this. Like, I turned them down because I didn't. Well, I mean, it was just uh, a bevy of riches uh, because mm-hmm. there were only. I mean, at the time, the magic art collecting community was extremely. Um, each message board had its own thread. MTG Salvation had its own art collecting thread. There was one on the motherboard, mothership. There was one on. Right. Uh, uh, MTG Librarities. Um, this is this is a time travel yeah. on its own. Oh, to- yeah, yeah. This is yeah, a yeah, wayback yeah. machine <laughs> capture. <laughs> That's right. Um, this was, I mean, before before Reddit was a thing, uh, and definitely before Reddit was like the place to go. Uh, every every message board had its own little ecosystem, and so each message board has their had their own little art collecting community. Um, and there was no um, centralized art collecting market or or community or anything there wasn't anything like that so you had all these various different ones and the ones that the one that really gained traction was the one on the the manager um because nick datweiler was really passionate about it i i was and became even more passionate about it and we kind of just grew a um grew a community and you can kind of trace um the uh, the growth uh, the foundation of the what has become um, an, an actual you know art market um, from the Mandarin, that one little thread of the Mandarin uh, kind of mm. got it all started. Um, and you just saw, uh, I mean, at the time, 2011, 2012, like I think Kev Walker 
2011. People didn't really, you know, like break into his collection till 2011. Um, that's when people started, you know, people were recovering from it and people had some money and people started looking into it. But even then it was still, there was nobody super dedicated. The only person that was really, um, he was like the, the, the ball or the high roller of the community was Daniel Chang. Um, and he's still, I mean, he's, he's still very successful. I'm sure you guys are very familiar with him. Daniel Chang, like the vendor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vintage magic. Um, so he, he, uh, as far as I know, was a, uh, sports card collector. And then randomly he bought a collection and the guy threw in a bunch of art and he was like, Hey, what's this? Um, he's, I believe he wasn't that familiar with the game at the time. And he just, he started and he, I think that happened legends legend says um it was around 2009 2010 when that happened and he just kind of and he had the resources to do it and so he just went he just went crazy he cleaned out um all the old artists of all their alphas um uh he i mean he had he had an amazing collection uh he still does um he's bought and sold random pieces he's had a lot of art you know go through his hands and he was like the big fish in the pond. Um, and there were other people at the time that, you know, had been collecting for a while. Like there was a guy that um, years ago bought, I think he either won or bought Tolarian uh, Academy and he has it. Ooh. And I think to this day still has it in his uh, bathroom hanging above the toilet. <laughs> I think that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of legends. I, I haven't affirmed it myself, but I, I believe that is, that is the the story that I've been told. Um, okay. And, yeah. Go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and finish your story. But I do have a question when you're done. Oh, sure. Um, and so it just once that that little seed kind of started germinating in the mana drain, I got you know got a little itch of wanting to create something and um, created a diff- bunch of different variations on it. But uh, eventually became the originalmagicart.com, um, which was basically just a, a a gallery for people to to uh, share their magic art, kind of which kind of helped bring a lot of people because I started writing about it, got other people to write about it. People would share their gallery, uh, share their collection art. And I eventually expanded into like uh, listing artwork available directly from the artist. And, and then that eventually turned into the original magic art store, which is now, um, you know, a full fledged going concern. The, the best place to buy tokens and play mats and sleeves on the internet. Not right? sleeves yet, but prints. Oh, okay. Pr- uh, definitely prints, uh, play mats, tokens, um, and we're, we're looking into sleeves. There, ho- hopefully there will be more to come on that, but, uh, sleeves have been my, my white whale of a project or product. Okay. Fair enough. Now the question I have for you, and this is related, uh, to, to your comments here is I have always found it, uh, curious the way, uh, art collectors, and this is not just magic art, but I, I know very little about art collecting in the larger scheme of things. So, um, my question is probably kind of cross over into the general sphere of art collecting. But what is the reason for being so secretive uh, about the movement of artwork in private collections? It seems like I'm every time you hear about some piece of artwork, or I should say half the time you hear about some piece of artwork, it's it disappeared into a private collector's collection and no one that you know that was not 12 years ago and no one knows anything about it now and we don't know where it is like why is there such a effort to keep that type of information private i i don't know i mean so security is one concern i know there is one large uh 
large collection. Um, he at one point owned Mox Ruby. I believe he owns currently like Chaos Orb. I believe he, he either owned or owns Time Twister, uh, Shivan Dragon, Birds of Paradise, Volcanic Island, big, Ooh. big boom, boom stuff. Big, big, big yeah. boom, boom stuff. And he's recently picked up more pieces. Like he owns uh, the original Factor Fiction. Uh, he bought Vidalcan Shackles from me. He bought, uh, he has an amazing collection. Uh, I, th- I believe it's actually, you can look at it uh, on uh, Comic Art Fans. And it was on the old originalmagicart.com, which uh, died and is now just redirects to the store because WordPress is annoying. Um, but uh, he uh, he goes by a pseudonym um, and he it's mainly just due to concerns of security just because i mean there have i mean you've seen stories of you know nefarious individuals causing harm oh, yeah. and stealing things and so when you're dealing with you know paintings are worth if somebody knows what they're worth they're they're like oh hey let's go take this guy out for a couple million dollars and i don't know exactly how you'd sell them from then on but i mean i don't I, I don't really consider doing it, so I don't know what that uh, thought process looks like. And and, so, um, and sometimes they don't think that far ahead, and you don't really want to give them the opportunity to make the mistake. Exactly right. So, I mean, security is definitely a reason. Um, some people just like owning it and don't want to bother with, like, people asking them, hey, can I buy this for 50 bucks? I have $200. I really – you bought that painting for $100. I know. I don't want to pay $10,000 for it. I'll give you $2,000 for it. Why aren't you taking my offer? Uh, some people are very insistent on it, uh, extremely insistent on it, and so they just don't want to bother. So once it's, it's once in their once it is in their collection, it's they own it. They know they own it. They don't need to worry about it. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm fairly public with what I own. If I don't share what I own, it's mainly because of I have way more many things to do, <laughs> and finding the time to properly catalog my art is something that kind of goes pretty far down on the list. But I try to get it every once in a while. Like uh, on my, my Facebook uh, uh, gallery has all of my artwork, which is right now, I think, um, I, have, I own probably around, I'd say around 60, maybe 70 paintings, and probably around 300 to 400, um, you know, sketches, color studies, thumbnails, that sort of thing. So do, do, I guess I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I find it interesting because it's not like this seems to be an issue for other topics. Like I don't really hear people avoid talking about owning power or, or what have you, or, or even other things that cost a lot of money. Um, it seems to be art specifically that people are very careful to reveal what they own. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I, I met a guy on a tour in Ohio couple years ago with my dad we were just checking out random magic shops and when we walked into the shop there was a box of arabian nights just (laughs) sitting on the shelf (laughs) sealed and we were like that's fake right he's like no it's i just keep it there you know it's just a, a little cornerstone of a much larger collection and i'm like sorry what's your name and he, he, he told told me his name because he's the owner of the shop. But <clears throat> And I was like, got to talking to him. And this gentleman has millions of dollars in alpha beta cards sealed away in a safe somewhere. And he doesn't want you to know that he has that or because he doesn't intend to sell them. The only time it's, pro- it, it's profitable to be promoting what you own is either because for ego reasons you want to show it off or much more likely you want to get rid of it. And then you want everybody to know. But if it's something you well, intend to keep, there's very little to be gained. I, I mean, like, nobody hides the fact that they own a Ferrari. Well, you can't if you want to drive it anywhere. 
you, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like people own night. It, art seems to be specific in how much of an effort people put into hiding it relative to other valuable things. We don't have to derail the whole episode with this. I was just curious about it. I, I know some people do. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons one of, uh, I created those galleries on the original Magic Art, uh, the original uh, site was so that people could share it. And because there's not there, there's not like one place like, hey, everyone shares their art here. There, I mean, there used to be. I built it, but it died. <laughs> uh, but now, like uh, comic art fans, um, there's a, a bunch of collectors that share their art there. You can see a lot of collections there. But as far as like a a dedicated site uh, for that sort of thing, um, I know that if something existed, uh, and I've I've tried to resurrect it a couple times, it doesn't really work with the structure of my current store. I, I'd love to, but uh, it's one of those things that it, you don't like creating that you're not going to make money off of it directly because you're just ha having people share art. Uh, so it has yeah. to be part of a, uh, a separate thing. And even then it's, it, it, it comes down to being a, a it's going to be a passion project. And as someone that has, you know, turned their passion project into a business, that that sharing aspect of it is great. It's great. Love it. I try to share where I can and promote sharing of your art because it's always great to show off your art. But as someone that you know runs it, it you just you just run out of you run out of time, and anything yeah. that's not contributing to your you know, the bottom line is going to eventually. We've seen lots of different things come along trying to capture that same magic, uh, or trying to uh, like people catalog the art that's come on, and, or they catalog all the sales that have gone on, just to create curate and collect the information that's out there to share with the community. But you eventually run out because you're you're not going to have the continued motivation that uh, a return is going to generate. Yeah, well, I mean that's any labor love, yeah. right? Like you know, that's how that works. So, Josh, do you have any like? You said you have sixty plus pieces. Do you have a couple of pieces that stand out as your points of pride? Um, I I've definitely had some really significant pieces, you know, come through my hands. Uh. Uh, but right now I'd say my most significant pieces, or at least the ones that are on the wall right now is I own the, um, do you remember, uh, San Diego comic-con, the poster of Nicol Bolas that was printed on the, like has the magic cards on the back. Sure. Okay. Uh, I, I own the original artwork for that. Like the actual original piece that was, that the prints were made from. Who was the That's artist on that? I, I got it in a trade. I don't actually know the artists. I feel really bad. I just love wow. the art so much. I know. I'm bad. I'm bad. I, some art collectors are extremely like knowledgeable about art, and they know all the details, and they know I just kind of like what I like, and I'm fairly mercenary in some ways on it. What kind of car... What kind of car is that? I don't know. But it's really I cool, like right? It, though. It's fast. <laughs> it's, it's super fast, and it looks great, but who built it? I don't know. Yeah, what are the size of the tires? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you could just look up that uh, that logo online. No, 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 I won't. And I will. I totally know. will. I totally will. I'll, I'll, once once this is off, I'll I'll try to remember it. I know it's not a magic artist. I know it. It, um, it, it was somebody else they specifically commissioned for this. Um, and I do feel bad that I don't know the artist, but I know I know a lot about magic art. Apparently, I don't know that one. Um, uh, then I have my sleight of hand, um, my original piece. I have um, Ranger of Eos by Vulcan Baga. Um, I I. I, I I do actually I have a couple of the invitational. For some reason, I, I I randomly collect like bits and pieces of collections. Like at one point, I owned Shadow Mage Infiltrator, uh, sold that to uh, John Finkel. Um, I have the um, Rakdos Augur Mage, um, but and I have who else? I think I have one more that I'm I'm forgetting right now. Uh, but I also have uh, who else? I have uh, 
Ta- General Takanao? Oh, no. Takanao Samurai, Samurai General. I have um, promotional art from... No, it was one of the challenge uh, pieces of art from... I think it was Born of the Gods. Uh, or was it Journey in the Nyx? It's the one with um, Xenagos with his hand... It was the, like the um, champion... Uh, uh, the artwork for the champion playmat from either Journey of the Nyx or Born of the Gods uh, by Lucas Graciano. It's it's like I think it's the best Xenagos because all of the um, Xenagos Planeswalker uh, uh, artworks, like the one the 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 one for Xenagos God of Rebels, um, by is by Jason Chan and he's 100% digital, so there's not even pencil work or anything for it. So I, I and I I only hang uh, originals on my wall. Um, but I have that one cause I really like that piece. And then I have the unglued swamp by, uh, Mark Zug. Oh, very nice. Now I definitely like the strategy of using your connections to get a hold of the invitational artwork and like the, you know, the, the stuff like the shadow made infiltrator and the solemn simulacrum, the originals, mm. and then reaching out to the person who designed the card and charging them an arm and a leg for it. I, I think that's a sound <laughs> well, strategy. I mean, right, right after I, they win the Pro it, Tour. I sold it to John. I sold it to John in uh, 2013 uh, like or so. So at the time it was a uh, it was a it was a premium attached to it, but not not it was it was I think he got a fine deal and and oh, it, looking back at it now, he got a steal. So it's great. Um, but no, he I was think, a hedge fund uh, manager. There was no way that you could sell that for not enough money. That's true. Um <laughs> But uh, I, a lot of them own them. Uh, I think uh, Bob uh, Bob owns Bob. Uh, Chris owns Meddling Mage. Um, I don't think that... Uh, who was Snapcaster Mage? Was that Terry So? Uh, yeah, that name sounds correct, but I'm not positive. I don't believe he owns that. Um, I, I know that Kai was looking for... Um, he, I think he passed on the original, like the onslaught void mage prodigy, but he was looking for the judge promo art. Uh, but that's not him, right? What on Kai for yeah, void mage the, prodigy? The, yeah, the onslaught the, art that is supposed to be him. Yeah, it's him. Yeah, but the art, but the promo wouldn't. That be. is him. That is. It was actually my understanding. I'm. I'm. He. He would have to confirm it. But my understanding is he was not. Uh, particularly pleased, or someone was not particularly pleased with the onslaught artwork, or at least the, his depiction in it. So that they were, they commissioned new artwork for him, and so they had the new version of the artwork. That's my understanding. That, that yeah, could, uh, could be entirely wrong, but the promo the promo very the, much has his likeness, and I have noted before that it looked like him. So that's that sounds right to me. Okay, they I, are both him, and I believe that the promo was done in, at least in some part to get a uh, more. Uh, uh, and he, he, if you compare the two, they're more they're dynamic. Fairly, I mean, they're supposed to be both like it's definitely a closer, uh, closer up, if nothing else, closer I, up uh, uh, portrait of him. Sure, um, I had to, I had to look it up because I said that without actually knowing what the judge promo looked like. I just knew that it was new art, but um, I forgot that that's what the onslaught version looked like, and I had the judge version in my head as the original. Oh art. no, yeah, the onslaught one. It, I mean, he's there, but it, he's. He's definitely yeah. not the focus of it, or at least he doesn't doesn't seem to be the focus of it. Um, yeah, and I think uh, Solemn is owned by the uh, the person that designed it, and a couple Four other ones. Gems, Some I people think. just don't go after him. I mean, I've I believe I've reached out to who's it's Oliver, right? Oliver is um, Oliver too. No, Oliver no, Ruel or Ruel. Yeah, I think he is. If I'm if my memory is correct, then I believe he's uh, um, Ranger Vios. Ranger Vios. Um, I think I reached out to him at some point and he wasn't interested. I don't know. Um, but I mean, it's, it's all, 
it's fun little bits of history and and um i i i like that they they included them. i wish they had reprinted them just so that they kept the um kept the people attached to the cards but at least they exist in some some version um but no yeah, i've, Ra- I've oh, oh sorry ranger of eos was antoine ruel ah close close one of them whichever whatever yeah. they're brothers they it is surprising that you would not be interested in owning that artwork. Well, sometimes you don't have the means. Not everybody's in position to drop the cash. That's true. Um, but uh, I, I've I've randomly like at some point I owned Sliver Queen, like the original painting for Sliver Queen, um, and I like toyed around with the, with the idea of you know, collecting all the slivers, but there were just so many. And oh my I just, god! I didn't. <laughs> um, and then I owned. Uh, at one point, I got into collecting elves because I owned Nettle Sentinel, Heritage Druid, and um oh what is what's the other combo piece with that? Uh I didn't own Birchlore Rangers. Um I owned the original sketch for Gaia's Cradle and I owned um why can't I think of the other what what are the other elves pieces that are like the common elves pieces? It was Heritage Druid and Nettle Sentinel were definitely like the combo. Oh Korean Ranger. Quarry and Ranger. Oh, I, so I had those, Ranger. and so like I was like, eh, I own these, elf, right? because I mean, you, you just randomly pick up things. Um, I picked up, I think I picked up the oh, first two, nice. like 2012, 2013. Randomly, 2014 picked up Korean Korean Ranger, and I was like, oh, I guess I collect elves now, and so <laughs> started collecting other things, and then eventually just sold them because I I I'm not passionate about the deck, so I don't really have. Uh, like, oh, you're, you're a fan of elves? Own the art for everyone. <laughs> I was getting close. I mean, I had the original sketch for um, Wirewood Symbiote, original sketch for Elvish Visionary. I had an elves deck. I mean, you could <laughs> you could do... I had uh, the original painting for Natural Order, original sketch for uh, Crater Hoof Behemoth. Don't, I, I, get, I committed at some point. It, it's I, sadly, it's I only cool if you set them up on your on a big wall in your living room with like some kind of pulley <laughs> system where you can tap them and then pick them yeah. up and put them back down. Yeah. I was say, do you guys ever have like little events where you build magic decks that are only made of cards <laughs> that would be a very exclusive event i at, at, at a certain point um we were I, there was a little like very minor league uh right sorry very small league of people that are doing it uh like jason jaco um was uh, like we we were also collecting art at the time and he um we started the art league uh where people you would wear white gloves and build your deck out of artwork that you own. Yeah, we did that. We were that pretentious, uh, but we got over <laughs> ourselves eventually and then just started sticking to collecting. But uh, no, I've done it. I've done it. Um, and I, 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 at some point, my one of my object- objectives to collecting art was to get a, a to build an art cube um, to have uh, you know over three hundred and sixty pieces of artwork uh, between sketches and paintings. And then I kind of hit that goal, and I was like, okay. Okay, well, I have a lot of art now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guess I'll do something with it. Well, that leads me to another question that, you know, you mentioned earlier when, when James asked you about pieces that you've owned. You talked about how you've had uh, a lot of pieces come and go through your possession, which makes sense to me. Um, but when I think about something like art, it strikes me as something that would be fairly personal in the sense that, like if I'm going to buy it, I'm going to buy it because I want to own it and I want to have it on my wall. But if you're, if it's come, passing through your hands, that means you're basically 
speculating on it. You're like, you're buying it with the hope that you can flip it for more money, essentially. Um, it, do, do, is that how you treat it? Like, do you look at it and go, this piece is for me or this piece is something I'm hoping to flip later on? Because I, other than that, I don't see why you would ever get rid of it, really, so, uh, short of needing the money. So, I mean, especially nowadays when artwork is so expensive, I think that if you're going to get into magic art, buy something that means something to you. Um, I mean, when I was getting into it, you know, buying a painting for 100 bucks, I think I got some for 75 Uh you're not, I mean, you're not attached to it in the same degree when you have to pay, spend, you know, $2,000 or something. I mean, if you're going to pay two grand or more, I mean, that's, that's almost the, the, uh, the floor for magic art now is like up to $2,000. It's, it's, it's gotten bananas. But like back when I got started, uh, I picked up pieces for much, much less. And so I didn't have that same sort of attachment. And, and a lot of people have, um, I, I, I go back to what, I, what I just said, where like, if you're going to buy art, buy something that means to you because means means something to you because while um it it i mean the art market has appreciated everything has gotten uh gone up uh but at the same time you don't you don't know if that's the case so if you're going to buy something buy something that you're going to put in the wall it's going to mean something to you and I, I never really had that specifically and i bought some pieces that I, like i had experience with like i have good memories attached to um enduring ideal i bought the original for that because uh back in gen con uh when two-headed giant was a thing when they were starting to roll it out they ran this tournament and i practiced with my uh with my friend at the time and we built this Arayo, uh, like one deck was Arayo uh, and ways to flip Arayo. And the other deck had rule of law and enduring ideal. And so like he'd flip Arayo, I'd play rule of law. And we, we I think in th the entire tournament, we ended up getting second um, because we, uh, we got ambitious and thought they didn't have the disrupting troll in their opening hand. And they did. Um, but uh, we played a total of in the nine rounds of magic we played i think we played a total of 12 turns because <laughs> we we would flip a ryu on for turn one i'd play rule of law on turn two or sometimes even early i mean it, it was it was bananas and then they'd scoop because like a rule of law what are you gonna do do you have Boseju yeah. in your deck no mm, nice nice game <laughs> um so yeah so I, I have a lot of uh memories attached during and during ideal but like at the same time it's I, a lot of the pieces the only pieces that i probably the last piece i'd sell right now if i were to sell because i've I mean, you always count the amount of artwork that i've i've you know bought and sold um i've always always thought like if somebody came to me and was like hey i'll give you half a million dollars for all your artwork i'll be like okay sure whatever except for this one piece the only piece i'd keep is sleight of hand just because that's the that was my first piece and there's no reason that i'd, I'd sell it um fair enough but everything else everything else has a number so the I, number might be might be high but uh it still has a number so i sure. have a couple of questions for you uh lead us off in some other directions you talked about the modern floor for pieces being somewhere around 2000 today we saw the seb mckinnon uh piece for damnation out of the latest secret layer go for 20k i believe it was 30 30 uh mm -hmm. fairly impressive so is that does that represent the ceiling? Is Seb McKinnon the pinnacle right now? No. I mean, Scott Fisher's Force of Will went for 76, I think. And um, and that was, you know, that was just the set before this. So that obviously there, there's more. Uh, but, I mean, you have a lot of... Uh, Seb is obviously a hot artist. But um, I think, like, the Damnation wasn't a final painting. It was finished digitally, and you could tell 
like if you compare the the finished digital painting to the uh, painting, uh, they are com- not completely, but they are definitely different. They are. It is a process piece. It is not a finished piece. Gotcha. It is not like he took a painting, a picture of this painting, sent it to Wizards, and that's the final piece. And there's always some premium that's attached to it because any variation. Um, between the artwork and the art on the card, uh, you're going to get some sort of like dissonance that's going to affect its value. But like the Scott Fisher piece was huge. It was force of will. Scott Fisher's an amazing artist. And, um, and it was the finished piece. Like, and he puts so much work into his finished pieces and he, he uses tons of different, uh, uh, he just does an amazing job with his artwork. Seb does a great, great job too. But like, if you'll, if you compare all of his <laughs> subs lazier, <laughs> no, no, it's not, well, his process is different and, and it incorporates a lot of digital pieces, digital finishes. Like he'll like a lot of his, uh, pieces that he's selling now on the art market, um, are process work. And if, in, in any process work is going to have variations and people aren't going to value it as highly. But I mean, any people to sell what effectively are color studies for tens of thousands of dollars, you're now, some of them are more rougher than others. Uh, that damnation piece was very well finished. Um, and I can see how he just wanted to make a few tweaks to it. Uh, but being able to sell them for what he does, he, he does, he does very, very well for himself, which is so great. It, can you provide some illumination to whether the presence of a market for magic art at the prices that modern pieces are commanding, does that encourage or warp process for some artists to move away from digital and towards something that they can sell physically? Definitely. I mean, several artists, uh, Victor Dominguez worked entirely digitally, not even pencil sketches when he first started doing it. And then he saw that there was money to be made and, and he, he made sure that, I mean, he made sure that his quality didn't suffer and he's definitely successfully uh, done that. Um, but he definitely moved like, uh, the, the cure best, cure best, cure bests, the sea God, uh, was done in paints. Um, and he was able to get a good price for that. And he's now moved to entirely, uh, traditionally, I believe there may be one or two pieces that he does digitally just, just when time crunch happens. Cause um, you can work a lot faster digitally, uh, and you can press the undo button, which doesn't really work with paints. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot, several artists, several artists are moving into it. If not, uh, full entirely, um, uh, uh, realized paintings uh they're doing uh at least pencil sketches or color studies and and the hope is that they're that they're doing this uh to the benefit of their artwork like they would they would do this obviously they're trying to capture those couple hundred dollars or more in some cases depending on the piece um without you know impacting their their process uh their speed or their their paintings but um so far the artists have been cognizant that they're not just being like ah yeah i, I really needed to make 25 different sketches for this one piece they're just like yeah i'm incorporating a pencil sketch in my work now i'm scanning the pencil sketch and then finishing digitally whereas before i just did everything entirely digitally is it entirely uh what's the term i'm looking for cynical to as an artist you pick and choose whether you do something in digital or in traditional based on how much you think the traditional version could sell for like oh this is a common in the upcoming magic set, this isn't going to be interesting or popular. I'm going to do it in digital, but, oh, I got a banner card. Uh, I'm going to do this one in traditional because I know the art will sell for more. So, like, they'll, 
I, I believe that the artists know they, they get limited information. They they don't know rarity specifically. If it's a, a reprint, usually they'll know the card, like the uh, they'll know what the card is uh, because they'll get the actual name of the card. There's no like secret special names when they reprint Seed of Sword of Force and Feast and Famine. It's just Sword of Feast and Famine. Um, they'll give yeah. you a different art direction for it, but they'll still call it Sword of Feast and Famine. So you'll be able to know like, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. I really need to put time into it because it'll be, it'll be worth it. Uh, but going into random sets, unless it's a Planeswalker, Sometimes they'll give them hints. It'll be like, "Hey, this one, this one, you should really put some put some extra English on, and, and it'll be worth your time." Um, but generally, they don't know exactly. But even so, it, the art market is, has matured to a degree where it's rewarding the artwork itself. Like um, Wiley Beckert, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She she did. Um, uh, what was it? Dismantling, not dismantling the blow. It was like death blow or something. It was a five mana black uh, common uh, dis- uh, destroy target creature or planeswalker, I think. Um, uh, I forget the, the name of it exactly. Um, but uh, it the, the card itself is a limited player. I mean, it, it definitely will see some limited play, but it won't... Um, finishing oh yeah yeah finishing blow that 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 art is amazing right the thing is like and but it's it used to be like uh back in the day uh pete venners uh, did a blog post about something called the curse of commonality where you could put hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and make the most amazing piece of artwork that you are so proud of and it's attached to a garbage common and no one will care about it at all yeah so but nowadays that's not necessarily the case people are rewarding artists that put in the time to make amazing artwork and then uh because like that finishing blow went for like nine thousand dollars and that's just a random common that you'll never see ever again um but the artwork is just engaging and 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 amazing and so the art market has, has kind of grown out of the attached value specifically and only for the power and popularity of the card and you're seeing more artists being able to get a lot good get a good return for even commons now but always right. as always you know we're magic players and magic players magic collectors are generally magic players and our memories are attached to the cards that we play and we play the more powerful cards so obviously those would be the cards that have more you typically more value assigned to them and that's why damnation went for you know thirty thousand dollars because it's it's damnation and and because it's set so it's just kind of a confluence of events and great, yeah. great art does tend to resonate even if people don't know who the artist is. I think uh, Wiley also did the new premium uh, cover for the new D&D book this month, uh, Tash's, oh, wow. Tash's Cauldron of Everything. And that version is sold out all over the place because awesome. the art is awesome. Good for her. And Hy- Hydro 74, I think, has has to be have some credit laid at his feet for the premium versions of the D&D books he's been doing for the last few years, including the uh, the core set books, because his work is insane. Yeah, and, D&D, D&D art is, is something I've never gotten into. I mean, I played D&D back in college, haven't really played it since. Uh, still love it, still follow it a little bit, I guess. Um, but it has its own funny little stories. Like, uh, uh, do you know, have you heard any of the stories about uh, when TSR was bought by Wizards of the Coast, no, that that's a little ways back from my D and D interest. Sure. Uh, so apparently, um, this is just kind of like lore, little bit, little bit of a D and D art lore. Um, back in the day, uh, TSR offices are they've been bought up by Wizards of the Coast. They're moving offices. They're throwing stuff in the garbage. John Shindahedi, 
this is the story I've heard. Uh, John Shendahedi, one of the, I believe he was an art director, a creative director, something like that uh, at the time. And he uh, goes out back, looks at the garbage and finds the original, like, um, you know, like little big demon statue with the gem uh, artwork, the rogue stealing the gem, you know, the really famous D&D, one of the boxes artwork, the one that that, like. Oh, the one with the dragons, the dragons reaching for him. No, no, no. It's like uh, where it's like a big uh, like imp statue or big demon step statue, whatever, with their picking out the uh, the gem at the top. Um, I forget exactly, but it's like it's a really famous piece of artwork. This works really well in an I, I know, I know. I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a really good storyteller. You, you, should, you should know. Oh, no, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the one that has the big red demon and they're up on top of it, cart like getting its eye out. Yes, exactly yes, that. Yes, that yes. Like, okay. That's like that's like quintessential classic classic D and D art. Like it was the art from the player's handbook back in the day. Excellent for advanced um, Dungeons and Dragons. And that was in the garbage. <laughs> As were like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings and process work and original paintings from D and D history. And he rescued all of it, or at least a good portion of it. I believe. I believe some of it may have already been thrown away at the time because they were just. It was just madhouse. Uh, at least that's my understanding of, of the the transition. There was just a lot of. And there wasn't. There wasn't. Uh, there. I mean, there wasn't an art mark for for D and D at the time. I'm sure somebody would have bought it if it was available. But there just it wasn't. And now D and D art is even more valuable than, than magic art. At least that's my understanding. Um, I was wondering about that. Yeah, it's it's been around longer in magic. I would expect magic art because my my theory of you know putting money into it because when I first started buying magic art, try to justify it to my uh, my wife was just like, well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm of a certain age and and theoretically my earnings will go up and I'm like I'm interested in this. So if I'm interested in it, there's probably be more interested. And as we get older, we'll have more money to put to it. And you can see how crazy things uh, nostalgia gets attached to it and these things are extremely collectible so that's how i kind of was just like yeah but her her main rule was like okay whatever you buy you have to be at least to be able to like you know break even and so that's why i didn't i didn't like some people went go for like big pieces i was and i kept on getting like base hits so i just got little 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 pieces took the took the good pieces that came along but just was like hey if i can buy this for a price where i can theoretically sell it at a certain point and make my money back on it. So I was, I, from the start, I was always a bit, a bit mercenary. When I got back into it in around 2011, 2012. So in a situation where a hot piece by a hot artist drops, uh, you know, new Wiley Becker to new Seb McKinnon, if it doesn't immediately go up for auction in a public space, is there a, a, a grand shuffling of feet for the interested players in your niche as you, Everybody tries to get on the phone or, you know, email the person they think knows the artist to get the deal done ahead of everybody else. Yeah. I mean, most most of the artists, if they are familiar with, you know, magic art, know that your best bet is to auction it or at least don't take the first offer that comes to you. And the artists that still don't know. Yeah, they'll like uh, certain pieces from uh, I think there was a couple pieces of box topper art that was the person reached out to them with an offer which at you know years ago would have been a fine offer like three grand for a painting sure yeah that sounds great now that piece would have been fifteen thousand dollars is that considered bad play or is this all uh i mean or ipsum type or well, i mean caveat emptor yeah, i mean it, <laughs> um 
are, are we calling out your friends by asking that question? No, I'm, I'm trying. To, I'm trying not to give, call out anybody. I'm just saying, like, um, hopefully, if any artists listen to this, which doubtful, but it's possible. Um, I, I've given a, a talk recently about you know just like if you're going to sell your magic art, know that magic art is valuable and don't just take the first offer. Um, you can auction it. If you don't auction, it, just throw it up on eBay. Just throw it up on eBay. People will, throw it up on eBay and then share it on the the Mat- MTG Art Market Facebook group that your auction your your pieces up for auction now and, and at least everyone has a chance and you're you're going to be able to get a good price on it um i i like running auctions on the mtg art market just because you have um uh like you can since you can run it yourself you don't have to be like okay my auction is ending at eight o'clock tonight and then whatever the highest price at eight o'clock is then that's the price i get you can you can extend it out like the one of the you know, anti-sniping measures that they've kind of universally included is um okay if i get a, a bid within the last five minutes it extends the auction out five minutes and then like i was i just participated in two auctions ended up losing both of them but uh when the auction was supposed to end, the pieces were half as much as what they ended up at. Um, because, mm. I mean, obviously, if you if you structured it differently, I'm sure you'd get you'd get higher prices. But at the same time, you, you get it. You can't get that same bidding war aspect that you're able to otherwise. Yeah. Now, do you have any tips for say you know regular Magic player, a collector looking to expand? maybe just starting to think about getting into the magic art scene and maybe acquire a piece at a you know a price they've got some disposable income they're willing to drop 5 10,000 maybe they're not really really ready to run with the the big boys and their toys but they're you know looking to feel things out do you have any tips for getting into the scene sure uh so my first piece of advice would be to whatever you're going to buy make sure it means something to you uh, like the uh, approaching magic art like you're going to make money off of it is not you're either going to burn out because you're not going to be able to run with the big guys um i mean there are guys out there with millions of dollars that are buying pieces and uh, unless you have those sorts of resources you're just gonna you're just gonna either bid yourself up to a point where you, you don't want to be or you're just gonna run in and, and you're just gonna scoop a bunch of pieces and you're gonna end up with a bunch of art that you don't really you may have paid too much for you. You don't really know. You don't really have that same attachment to it that that you should. Um, so if you're going to buy your first piece, make sure that it's a piece that you're that you're interested in and have some some level beyond just a, a potential financial return in the future. Um, also, uh, look into sketches. Um, I at a certain point I was f- like. Uh, I was effectively priced out of just buying a bunch of magic art and had to be very like if I was going after a painting, I had to start being very tactical about it. And so I started looking into sketches <laughs> and that's how I went from, you know, like two sketches to 400 just because I was able to catch get, get sketches when they were, you know, 10 bucks, 50 bucks. And now they're 200 bucks, 500 bucks. Um, but even at 200, 500 bucks, uh, just, just like if you're evaluating how much, what's a good price for this, um, sketch uh, the general rule is like 10% of the value of the painting like I um, uh, Shelly Wan um, who hasn't hasn't done art for a while but she did the original um, Misty Rainforest and the original or the judge promo uh, survival of the fittest uh, she found or uh, recently surfaced and found the original charcoal drawing for um, survival of the fittest and um, so I went after that piece because I had been trying to get a hold of her for a while. And, and years and years ago, um, I 
lost out on the original survival of the fittest painting on ebay um so i i always wanted a piece i wanted that um so ended up uh, i i fought the good fight but uh i was my estimate of the painting would be that it would be worth if it was going up for like auction to be worth something like uh 30,000 or so i don't know could be more could be less but that was just like my guess my guess and since um if you apply the 10% rule but since there is no painting that uh that 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 charcoal sketch is the only original that exists for the piece at all so i, I always add a little premium to that so my target uh price was around like 4500 that was like how much how max i was going to pay for that um and it ended up going for 5500 and i just I didn't, I don't, I like, <laughs> I am not a, uh, an endless wallet, so I can't, I can't just blow past my, my, uh, limits, uh, wantonly. So I, I lost out on that piece, but it, you just get, you get an idea of like, if you're going to value, like if I'm going to buy a sketch, how much do I think this, uh, if you're evaluating what a good price for a sketch is, you know, like how much would the painting go for just as a rough ballpark? Uh, and then you apply 10%, maybe more. Uh, depending on, on what you exactly, but it's, it's sketches are a much more just like that, that 10%. If, if your if your original paintings are going for a minimum of $2,000, then you're looking at sketches around $200 or less or more. I mean, there, there, it varies again, piece by piece and pencil sketches can be tighter or have tonal values, or you can get a lot of variation on pencil sketches. But I've seen, you know, like even thumbnails, um, artists do, uh, like thumbnails in their sketchbook and then cut the pages out and sell the thumbnails and they go for like 40 50 bucks <laughs> so it's still you still it, it, it's um process work so you're not exactly getting the you know finished images but it's still you're capturing that same like this is a unique piece of magic history that was involved in the creation of um and creation of the game um and one last one last avenue for art collectors that uh, is something that i'm i'm looking to you know expand the the original magic art store into um and work with artists to to get made and it's just a um an avenue that is like i knew there was a potential out there because it exists in the the broader art market uh but it's prints like limited edition prints um and uh monotypes and otherwise limited edition uh i printed artwork like they are not sorry they are not can i ask sure what is a monotype? Oh, so like it's a one of one. Like so you'll see monotypes is a one of one print, sometimes embellished by the artist. So they'll make a canvas print of the artwork and then they'll slap some, not slap that. That sounds a little, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That's, uh, they'll, they'll add, add artwork, add, um, physically painted elements to the print. Uh, in some cases they'll repaint the entire, like they'll use the print as a base, but they'll, uh, paint the entire um surface like i i the last you know, just going the last auction i <laughs> lost out on um the artwork for um thrasios um the it was finished digitally entirely digital process uh but the art the artist wanted to i mean at a certain point capture some of the demand that's out, out there for the work so they made a one-of-one one monotype where they printed out the artwork for that thrasios and then painted the entire piece 
over. Uh, basically just embellished the entire there there was no non-painted surface on the print so technically it is a fully painted monotype you can get any variation on these one-of-one prints from no embellishment whatsoever they just promise they're never going to print one again like uh seb mckinnon um before he started working in paints he did um printed canvas monotypes i believe originally it was just the print then he started doing paintings on the inside of the canvas uh and now he's moved on to actual actual paintings and and obviously his returns have grown from i think he was originally charging around fifteen hundred dollars for the uh the canvas monotypes now he's obviously getting you know like ten thousand plus per painting so obviously that but there's 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 a uh, less time in line less time uh involved in in creating the canvas print obviously um so the monotypes are yeah that they're one of one one of one prints and it's um something that i would expect you'll see more and more of especially from digital artists that don't want to um transition or like they're they just any anytime you switch mediums from a digital medium to a physical medium you're going to have to adjust your process which is going to take time could impact your um your artwork and so like some artists don't want to don't want to do that and they just like they don't have time or they don't that it's not something they're interested in so they want to keep the digital medium and so like these one-on-one monotypes and other limited edition um uh sorts of prints are going to probably be uh more and more prevalent especially you're seeing more artists being more successful with it not only um with uh like the Josie Hernandez, the thrasios doing well uh but also like elena daner um did uh a limited edition embellished run of i believe it was it was either 50 or 150 of her jeweled lotus and they sold out Ooh. immediately and <laughs> i think i think like the the and then she did a limited run of non-embellished prints uh i think of 250 and those have sold out so i think of that one piece uh just going off of um like raw it, 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 money coming in she made over like twenty five thousand dollars in sales on that so that's that's great now obviously she has to hand, hand embellish 150 prints that's a lot of time involved but at the same time you're making money off of, of a one piece and that's that's great that's more than well no probably the original if, if it was done in paints you'd probably be able to get more than you know twenty five thousand dollars probably but still that's but, still it's still great and it's, and it's just limited prints so it's something that it's an avenue that is growing um that I think is very young. Like when I first got it started, prints were nothing. Limited because artists didn't really do too much with. It. They just made like yeah, I'd have made a. This is a my run of one of a, of a thousand print run of this artwork on my eight by ten piece of paper. But now the artists are putting more time into it because because there's more potential gain from it. I remember there was a really gorgeous eldest the eldest reborn limited print. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, by Jen Ravenna. Ravenna, yeah, that mm. that was amazing. Yeah, and uh, you've got me over here on the Wiley Beckert site looking at her Soul Shatter limited edition print and the Thwart the Grave, both mm-hmm. at fifty five dollars. They both look very frameable. Yep. Yeah. So let... The limited so... edition prints are it's it's still new. A lot of people are trying a lot of different things, and um, there are other you know. Uh, I, I'm, I would not be surprised. Like what I've, what I've been reaching out to artists to try to get interested in is doing either monotypes or limited edition canvas prints, that sort of things. Uh, just because there's more potential gain out there for it, but they also look better. I mean, canvas prints look, 
look amazing and you don't you don't even have to frame them uh and you can still put them on the wall and they look great um so there's definitely um that's that's an avenue that i'm interested in so can you tell us more about you know what your focus is with oma um, the kinds of products that you guys are generating and what the business of working with artists to bring uh products to market based on their art is like because that must be a fairly unique uh set of negotiations um yeah luckily or thankfully i i try to maintain a good uh reputation within the community uh of artists so i've had some reach out to me and and generally anyone that i talk to is is fairly receptive even if we don't end up working with something working out a deal on something um like for, for instance prints we work with uh 80 80 some artists on prints where we uh basically sell we do all the we do everything for them they just provide us with the images we print everything and we pay out the royalty but we're not able to um, I mean, we say, I say we, uh, OMA is, is basically me in my office, in my garage. It's just, it's just a one guy operation with a couple, um, uh, designers I work with for, for some of the product designs. Uh, so it's just, just me working out with, uh, the, working out the deal with the artists. So they, uh, I can't match the same, um, uh, margins because we do like our printing. We, we work with a third party printer and, and so we, we can't offer things like imprint so we're unable, not able to to offer the same level of uh like royalty payment that, that other companies are able to but we kind of make up for that by like targeting specifically the magic art market providing a, a dedicated marketplace for their magic art and, and we're actually able to be fairly competitive with the amount of money that we're able to raise for through our through our store compared to what they can uh, get from other services um but uh we we just try to maintain uh, we try to keep everything uh or my my guiding philosophy is that as long as you are uh transparent in your dealings and you try to make things right generally things are going to work out um we started with one artist we're now working with 107 and and i think i need to add one more soon uh and, and i hope to add even more the way it generally works out is i'll i'll talk with an artist and say hey uh, I see that you don't offer prints of your artwork or you don't or you don't offer playmats or hey you just came up with this amazing piece of artwork like um, um, Miranda Meeks actually somebody approached to me uh, saying hey you really need to make artwork for uh, indulging patrician and I was like what what's that I, I, I was aware of your artwork but I wasn't really wasn't really familiar with it because it wasn't like a, a boom boom card so that's generally what I what I think people are going to be more, most interested in but uh, and I looked at it again and I got more and more requests for it and I reached out to the artist and I was like hey um, I see that you don't you don't really offer uh, play mats uh, some artists do it all themselves they have their own uh, operations a lot of artists don't and so I'm, I'm kind of targeting those artists that don't already have those so that we can, you know, you get a win, win, win. So like we can make the products available, they can get paid for the work and, and obviously we can get paid for your, for creating those products. Um, and so we, we actually created a, a, a pre-order store uh, where people can submit their requests. Like I really want to get this artwork created and we get, the, once we get enough requests, we get the artists on board, then we get Wizards of the Coast on board, then we open up for pre-orders, and if we can hit 25 pre-orders, uh, then we can actually get it printed. And we've actually got been able to get like 44 uh, mats, uh, new playmats printed uh, through that. And, and we created that because, I mean, the playmat market 
is full, man. <laughs> that playmat yeah. market is lots, and, and, and lots that, of playmats. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has a stack of playmats, but you always want more because there's always new artwork and you always uh, new ways to celebrate it. So it's they're they're like semi consumable. Like you 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 want to get new playmats just to have uh, a new surface to play on, new way to new artwork to enjoy. But at the same time, it's not like they don't they don't tear like sleeves. They don't uh, get as get as dirty. They can they're actually cleanable. Uh, so it's it's an odd it's an odd market that because we're still able to be very successful. Like we, we just offered the, um, uh, Foglio, uh, the, the folio, uh, Kickstarter is the latest Kickstarter I ran. And, uh, it ended up doing very well. Even I think all told we raised something like $250,000, um, for, for nice. the project, Shh. uh, and for Phil Foglio, Phil, uh, Phil and <laughs> Kaya. Yeah. Yeah. To Travis. Phil, Phil Foglio is, I think, the, the worst thing that happened to Magic Card art is since the inception of the game. Man, you, that guy's art is awful. Uh, do, do, I, do, do, <laughs> I, I disagree, it's, but okay. It's, it's, it's a pretty... It's, it's a definitive it's, style, and I. it's pretty clear your, Travis doesn't think it belongs uh, in the Pantheon. It is, what's your favorite Foglio art? I'm going to go look it up. Uh, I'm asking you, Josh. Can um, I put him on the spot like that? I like Presence of the Master. Master, it's just. Ha. I mean, it's just, it's just like deviant art, man. Like, like if this was Sonic the Hedgehog pregnant, like I'd be like, yeah, this is about the quality of art I would expect. Josh, Josh welcome to my life. Well, um, I mean, it's polarizing, no doubt, but um, I, I, it's obvious there are obviously a lot of fans out there, and, and there are a lot of dedicated fans, and we were just happy to be able to to make it happen. Um, and, and, and I and I would argue that regardless of how you feel about the art, it defines an era of magic, and that there is definitely a nostalgia quotient because art magic art absolutely does not look like this today. And for people that played no, 90, 93 not. to ninety seven, I can absolutely see how they might be attached to it. I, I could easily see my father being being into picking up some of this. Yeah. It's absolutely an Arab magic. Hey, remember when we tried not to look at the cards? Yeah, boy, that was a day, huh? <laughs> I have so I have a lot of opinions about the magic art, but I do not share. That's them. fine. Like really? generally, I'm generally no, I'm generally very quiet because Twitter is. There's a huge contingent of people on Twitter who, who love a lot of magic art, and I find it easier to just stay out of it because I will get uh, lambasted for some of my opinions about magic art. Honestly, I will say that I, <laughs> I possibly uh, well deserved. <laughs> I, I'm I'm I can appreciate any and all magic art. You know, word of command, I love it. It's. <laughs> uh, n- I will say now. So hold on. I will since we're on the topic, uh, and you're the right guest for this. I will say that I have long complained about the um the uniformity in art direction of late and i mean i say of late now it's probably been a decade but i actually wrote an article a long time ago back i think even before i was on mtg price or right around the time i started because uh, it was just about art and i was like it sucks that they've just made all the art uniform and the style guide is adhered to so strictly because like stasis is weird and doesn't quite feel like it fits anymore but like it's still cool that it exists and I like having weird stuff like that. And it is boring when everything is just the same and like, you're going to end up with Foglio, which for me is not great occasionally, but you get these really 
awesome, remarkable, iconic pieces when you allow, when you open up the window for what's allowed. And I feel like the current art style just doesn't allow for nearly as much cool, truly iconic pieces to arrive. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the business that, that informs some of the (laughs) artist selection process, Josh, because I think that there is, I think for a lot of listeners, they would probably either be surprised if they had thought about it or just know nothing about what even allows a magic artist who has produced art, presumably as a commercial commission for Wizards of the Coast, vis-a-vis Hasbro, to go off with you and print that art again on some other product. Can you talk to a little bit about how those the artist's initial deal typically gets done and how that informs what they're able to do with their art later? Sure. So um, uh, it, things changed around Mirage, but it, with the new artist contract, Wizards owns everything. Anything artists are able to do is basically by by either contract or agreement with Wizards of the Coast. Uh, so any copyright, anything like that is all owned by Wizards. And so the um, the artists are able to, as I believe as part of the contract, they're able to make prints. That what exactly entails a print is a good question. I know some artists sell greeting cards of their artwork on imprint. I don't know, is that a print? Mm. Can you print on metal? I don't know. Is a canvas print the same thing as a print? I don't know. It's not exa- not everything is entirely detailed, but it's kind of one of those things like, uh, which is going to be cool with it as long as it's not an issue. If it becomes an issue, then it's going to be an issue. But right now, they're just kind of it's kind of like if there's if it's a print and it could be theoretically entitled as a print. People, the artists are able to sell it without generally any restrictions or input from Wizards, other than including a uh, copyright symbol, Wizards of the Coast on the artwork itself so that, that at least you do have that copyright information on it. Um, beyond that, it is, um, it is dependent on uh, different licensing programs that they have. Like uh, a couple years ago, uh, Wizards introduced Playmats. They created a program where artists can say, hey, I want to enter into a, a licensing agreement with Wizards of the Coast that I can only print through Ultra Pro and I can only print in units of 50 and I can only print artwork that you approve of in a design that you approve of using your logos, etc. But I can print and sell them myself. And beyond the uh, royalty that Ultra Pro pays Wizards of the Coast for the printing of the playmats, artists can charge whatever they want. That's why you see uh, artists charging a premium because they, they pay a premium for the for the artwork itself, uh, they're not able to match the margins that Ultra Pro can because they are—they're paying a, a higher royalty because they have to pay Ultra Pro and they have to pay Wizards of the Coast effectively for the the, the artwork itself. Um, but still, you're still able to be very successful with it, and and generally to get these artworks, that's the only way you're going to get it printed is through this artist program. For many of them, uh, Ultra Pro rarely goes, you know, and looks in the back catalog of Magic. I know, <laughs> right when I was running a a, a Kickstarter for Commander playmats where we were doing like Nekasar and um, uh, Karn and a bunch of other stuff. Just just the random timing, Ultra Pro decided, hey, we're going to do Commander playmats too. And that's how you got that Commander collection, <laughs> which was a fun way to end the project with people going, hey, you've seen this? Yep. <laughs> that's neat. <laughs> um, but uh, so generally, uh, playmats, uh, playmats are an option. Um, beyond that, uh, 
they can't use magic art for most anything else other than like promotional like banners and, and you can include it in art books or you can include it in um yeah some some artists and only a certain percentage i think like no no magic artist can do like a hundred percent this is this is a book of hundred percent my magic art has to be i think they they have they have it codified i think it's like 70 percent can be uh magic artwork in any book they produce um so they have additional uh avenues for for revenue but our art books are a pretty niche niche of a niche of a niche um product market for that um i'm i'm hopefully hopefully we'll be able to uh do more things but that just depends on getting like watsy legal watsy lights thing and the artists on board so it's always you know <laughs> it's a, a big to get to think. yeah um so anything beyond that has to be artwork that they have rights to um so like if it's tokens it has to be artworks that uh, nothing related to magic art uh, technically like i whenever i'm doing a project i always keep away from um specific watsi created things like sapperlings or proper names or things like that i mean were i to talk to a lawyer they'd probably say you could probably get away with it but at the same time i like to try to keep a good relationship with wizards because i I interact with them uh, and I basically exist at their, <laughs> at their mm-hmm. benevolence to I'm some degree because I, I, my business is entirely uh, based on, on their IP. So we want to make sure that we have a, a good relationship with them. Um, but uh, some artists don't really mind and they'll kind of roll those dice and make their own sapperling or sliver tokens. But even so we, we still try to make sure uh, like if I, if I uh, whenever I do art direction for a token project, or something like that, I, I want to make sure that we're not using like, if we're going to do a sliver token, then it has to be like a sliver of glass or something like that. You don't want to have something that gets too close. Cause every time you get closer and closer to Watsy IP, then you're just going to get, you know, more and more likelihood of either the artist getting in trouble or you getting in trouble or something like that. Um, so you just want to make sure that, that you're careful with that. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, beyond that, I mean, uh, you're, you're, if you can do binders, you can do all these other things, but all, all those things you're, you're not able to, you're not going to be able to capture the same thing. Cause you have to have, you can't have magic art on it. And usually your minimums are high and your margins are low. And, and so there's, there's limits to what can actually be like a viable product for a lot of things. There is a lot of hands in this pot. I think it's easy for those of us outside of that universe to realize just how many angles this all takes. How many, how many people are involved every step of the yeah, way? Yeah, there's a lot of interested parties. Now, Josh, can you comment on how that scenario has changed over time? Like, do you have any stories about the bad old days of how Wizards handled artists up front, whether those deals were tremendously different than they tend to be today? Oh, uh, well, I mean, back in the day, like Alpha days, it was, it was basically the Wild Wild West. Everybody got... Um, they sent out, I believe the actual art direction for Alpha was basically, hey, um, here is a list of words. Pick your words. <laughs> draw whatever you want. And <laughs> and it eventually became like, like, like what it is now. It grew into the like, you know, here's the mood. Here's the color. Here's the uh, specific elements you need to include. Uh, sort of, here are the things you need to avoid. Refer to this page of the style guide. Uh, here is what this character looks like. Make sure he looks the same. That sort of thing. But back in the day, it was um, here's terror. Draw terror. 
Here's fear. Draw fear. Here's <laughs> Mox Ruby. Good luck. <laughs> What's a Mox? What's exactly. A <laughs> I, I did a uh, I did a interview of Dan Fraser, and that was exact his exact question. Um, but in the original pro- the original contract was uh, very uh, not exactly ambiguous, but like they got like here's a here's a funny i've i've read uh talk with some artists and i've read a bunch of the story history from peter atkinson things like that um and but artists got paid uh 50 bucks uh for alpha artists were paid 50 bucks in cash and 50 dollars in in stock which quote my estimate is somewhere between 50 shares or 25 shares of stock uh in a company that was untested likely i mean the original wizard of the coast was it was run out of Peter's basement. It was like a bunch of people that had high aspirations and were about to get into legal trouble, uh, for their use of improper use of licensing. Um, but, uh, they, so who knows what, who knows what the stock was going to be worth worth. And they had royalties attached to it as well, which were fairly, um, generous, but at the same time, it was just, they had less money they had to pay up front to get the, the product actually printed. And so a lot of artists were like, yeah, sure. What I'll, I'll do this. Or some of them were like just fresh out of art school. And some of them were, I think might've still been in art school. They were all friends of Jesper Mirfors, <laughs> uh, relatively few like established fantasy artists, because if you're an established fan art, fantasy artist, you want established fantasy artists pay. Um, and so, uh, that apparently ended up being very, very lucrative for them because those shares uh, ended up selling for $1,400 a piece when Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast. And some of the artists from the royalties were paying, I I forget if it was 60000 a month or 60000 a quarter, they were getting paid out in royalties. Um, so wow. some of them did very, very, very well. Uh, and I remember uh, I've heard stories from Jesper Mirfors, the original artist, art director, how he was telling people, the artists that he knew that were working in the game, like you keep your stock, keep your stock, buy more if you can get more stock. Cause he was, he was a hundred percent. Like this is going to go bananas, go to the moon. And he was right. It, it did very, obviously did very, very well. Um, but the original contract, <laughs> a little, uh, a little casual old school insider trading there. Yeah. Uh, so he, uh, uh, the original contract for, uh, for artists had, uh, I believe they retained some rights to it. Like I know some artists, uh, like Dan Frazier is able to make playmats of his original Moxon and, and, uh, things like that, uh, that because he still owns the rights to that, uh, I believe there's, it, 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 it's ambiguous to the point where it's like, if you're, if you're willing to roll the dice, you can probably legally justify making these artworks, making playmats of your artwork. If you did anything pre Mirage and that's when the contract changed, um, anything pre Mirage, there's uh, the potential that you own the rights enough that you can actually make whatever products you want out of them. And so you see some artists that are like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. Uh, Doug Schuler, Dan Frazier, a couple like that. And then at a certain point, um, uh, I don't exactly know the timeline of when, but at a certain, at a certain point, Wizards of the Coast bought out some of the art, some of the rights from the artists, uh, so that they could do whatever they want with. Like uh, that's how I was able to do the Folio project. Like the reason why you don't see Mark Tadine selling playmats of his original artwork from like Chaos Orb or Soul Ring or Necropotence things like that is because the actual legal. Um, question of whether or not who owns the rights and who's able to make products out of it hasn't been entirely figured out yet uh i know the artists are working on it with watsy yeah yeah i mean at a certain point maybe they'll be and and maybe we'll be able to see some of that original artwork but a lot of it 
could be locked behind royalty agreements that which is the ghost there's no reason to pay out the royalties um because why pay extra for our work that's going to be going to cost a lot less like why pay tens of thousands of dollars in royalty when you could just commission a new piece for 1500 bucks boy is that all they pay oh hey man that's high Whew, what are you talking about that is high wizards is the gold standard for commissioned artwork they pay the highest rates if outside of like book covers so fifteen hundred is the going rate. I believe it's fifteen hundred, like fifteen hundred or twelve. Um, so so let me let me get this straight. I can get Wiley. I can get Wiley Becker to make art exclusive for MTG Price for fifteen hundred dollars. Well, well, okay. Are you attaching it to a global brand that is going to be allow her to sell the original for nine thousand dollars, sell prints of it for fifty five dollars right. a piece, sell? I'm going to tell her that. <laughs> That's the plan. So, I mean, buy, buy shares now. Yeah. Any commission, uh, any commission from Wizards of the Coast, you have some additional value attached to it. So, like any, any time investment that you're going to put gotcha. into the piece, you you have some additional because you also get artist proofs, and and so you're able to sell those. And each art artist proof, you have the opportunity to charge a couple hundred dollars to paint or to do a small painting on the back and just make more money. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of additional opportunity. They, I believe they also get a uh, sealed product, or at least they used to, which is just an additional, like, Hey, why not give me a couple hundred, give me a hundred bucks or, or whatever. Like you had a piece in commander anthologies or uh, the yeah commander anthology. Then you get a commander anthology. You had a piece in ultimate masters. You get a box of ultimate masters. It's just a couple hundred bucks extra. It just adds onto it. So, um, sure. There's there's additional fringe benefits for being an artist beyond the, the the commission itself. I mean, it's still and compared to like Fantasy Flight or um, all the other all the other uh, outfits out there that are you know, commissioning fantasy fantasy artists for artwork, the Wizards pays the most and 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 they also have those additional rights to do prints. Like I believe the the like Blizzard when they commission um, artists for artwork for Hearthstone, you can't make prints. You print, cannot make and sell prints of that artwork. That may have changed when they transitioned from World of Warcraft to Hearthstone, um, but they don't. They I know they have restrictions on it because you don't see that same level of of uh, product out there for artists selling prints of that. At least I I haven't. I could be mistaken with that, but I I believe that I've I've seen it's... some variations for specifically for like Activision Blizzard, uh, and then finally Fantasy Flight. Nothing. <laughs> Good luck. No, they don't. They don't, which one's um, Fantasy Flight? Uh, they do a lot of board games. Are yeah, tons and games? tons of board. But they also okay. I think at some point either they bought or owned uh, Legends of the Five Rings. Um, I think mm. that they bought that from AEG. I think it was AEG. I don't know. That's that. I don't know. That seems like fifteen hundred dollars. It just seems wild to me. Even if you let's say we'll say add on five hundred dollars worth of value, because like you know whatever. So if you're getting two grand for a piece of artwork, like how many of those do you have to do a month to like lead a lower middle class lifestyle? Like at two a month at two grand a piece is still. You know, four grand a month is fifty-ish grand a year. Yeah, but Josh is saying there's a lot, a lot of money. knock-on like value, like the the two or three grand, the it, two grand you get up front is just a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, but I'm just even if you double that, like a hundred. I mean, a hundred grand's fine, I guess, but you can't live in not in a major. Wait, what do you want me to tell you? Art, artists are over underpaid globally. <laughs> yeah, and and you have there's there's a lot of revenue potential revenue streams for artists. You have signings, you have altars, you have um, the prints, you have uh, the originals. If you sell the originals, the process work. If you sell the process work, uh, you have uh, and then you have it, being able to market your 
becoming a magic art magic artist also opens your artwork up to the broader magic community um you can get you know what 20 million people potentially looking at your artwork potentially looking at your website and picking up other other artwork that you're really passionate about um and like when i work with artists um for like ideally if we're, if i'm doing a token project with an artist it's something that they want to make already like um i uh, i really want to make this artwork and i want to pour time into it and expand my uh test out new things test out new mediums test out new styles things like that but that's just a lot of time how can i justify that oh i'll make a i'll make artwork and then monetize it through a token project and sell it to magic players so they can enjoy my artwork they really enjoy but at the same time, um, I can, you know, you know, invest the time into this while using the uh, kind of cachet that I've built up and uh, have a built-in market for my artwork beyond uh, just, hey, guys, buy a print of this. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to my little case mm-hmm. study there because you've got me curious. Let's say I want Wiley Beckert to produce a piece of art that we're going to use multi-format. It's going to be on mouse pads and play mats and t-shirts and whatever and you're brokering the deal what are you telling us we have to pay to get that done i don't know i don't i don't i am not a agent in 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 as such like that that's that's like a if i represented artists and were working out deals for them directly sort of thing i haven't done that too much um I would expect, like given my experience with commissioning artists, that you're going to pay a base rate for the painting itself. Then you're going to pay uh, some right, some amount for the rights to make whatever products. The more products, the more you'll pay. Sure. Generally, uh, I mean, depending on the piece, like if you if you were if you were going to buy the painting itself, like it, it all depends on like how deep you want to go in. Like if you want her to paint a painting, you could keep the painting, and then you get to. Uh, you retain rights to reproduce the painting you, in some right. some variety of ways. That's very expensive. It will be more expensive than just hey, like I I commissioned Siddharth uh, Shattervetti to do a, a piece that I wanted. Like I wanted a, a painting of Nicol Bolas, and any painting of Nicol Bolas is going to be like ten to fifteen thousand dollars. So why not get an artist that I really like? Uh, that they I've seen what he does with private commissions, and I really like what he does. Get him to to make something for me. And he did. And I really loved it. Um, I still, I have it in a tube. I can't go to my framer because, you know, pandemic, but uh, I'll, I'll eventually be able to show it off. And I really, really, uh, really like it, but I don't have any rights to sell it. I don't plan to reproduce it and not be not able to. And so I didn't have to pay that extra, but like that painting was, was a 24 by 36 painting. I paid 4,500 for it. I said, I think, and his rates may change. Um, but, that's I wanted a final painting, a final end product. If you wanted just a digital piece of artwork, if you were, if you were not interested in owning the uh, painting itself, then that's going to change. De- change. Um, it, it depends on which artist you'd work with. Some artists would be like, "Cool, yeah, I'll just do it digitally. It's not a problem." Other artists don't work digitally, so you'd have to have a painting. So it'd be a different different structure. Um, generally, since artists, uh, since digital work can be done faster uh mainly because you just your workflows is going to be on one surface you don't have to change in between and you can do you have the undo button which is always always nice um you you can generally get something a little bit faster maybe a little bit cheaper uh for digital and you have more flexibility with it because you don't have to like depend on the taking a picture of the final image things like that um so you could you could go that route that might affect the, the structure but I, w- I would expect it would be somewhere in the range of 
for like all those rights two to three thousand dollars or so i'm not exactly i'm not exactly sure that's fascinating that's depending on the piece that's dirt cheap like like it just seems unbelievably inexpensive for what you could be getting not like you you don't have to be a wealthy guy to be like oh, I'm gonna just have artists start making me custom stuff. It, it all depends if, if on I have, how. If I have how to it, choose between paying someone three thousand to build me a new deck, or to give me a piece of build a piece of art that expresses vision for some project that is pertinent to my needs, uh, I'm gonna go with the art every time. And and all depends. Like it, the the more complex the piece, the larger the larger the format it's going to affect it. Like I, I could have gotten, I could have, could have paid half what I paid for like a, a 12 by 16 painting. So it all depends on what you're going to be, um, what you're going to be looking for. Interesting. You, you just made a, you should be getting commission for this because of the number of people who are going to listen to the cast and go, wait, it only costs yeah, me that, how much that, to that get have the money to do from something. these artists. <laughs> and they're all going to go to the art and be like, so you'll draw me a picture of like whatever I want for four. Well, grand. yeah. And, and that's an, uh, uh, another element that you see in the comic world, uh, that does not exist in magic. You, you, sure. like, you don't, you don't, you, yeah, there's, there's this whole con sketch thing where you'll have, you'll, you go to magic, you go to, you go to comic con. There are play, tables and tables and tables and tables of comic artists yeah. out there. And they're like, Hey, draw me daredevil, uh, falling down a building with Electra on top of it, looking down. And they'll be like, okay, whatever, 200 bucks. And they'll do a pencil sketch and they'll get it done in a couple hours. And there you go. You're done. And now you, you there are people that have entire books that are just like, here's my book of con sketches from this con or, or this artist. Every, I go to the, I go to this con every year and I talk with the same artist and every year he does a new sketch in my book. And, and so I, and that's a, a thing that doesn't exist in the magic world that, is is growing basically as as the art market matures more avenues more more people get interested in it and there's more avenues for an artist to potentially make things that people care about like back in the day man artist proofs artist proofs were nothing man artist proofs were like i guess they're maybe worth more than the the original uh the actual card i mean they were they were like sure there were only 50 of them but no one really cared about them and now now not only people are recognizing how rare they are, uh, but they also people are just putting they're paying the artist to put time into really making some amazing things on the backs because they're 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 just white back cards. And now artists are delivering just like paintings, just gorgeous detailed paintings on the backs of these and they're you're being paid for it. So it's another avenue that uh, that they're able to monetize that they you know, back in the day just people would be like hey i want you to sketch in the art uh, sketch on the back of an artist proof and they're like okay whatever five minutes here's my dragon that everybody gets or here's my soldier that everybody mm-hmm. gets with my my sharpie so so five i i knew a, wait i knew a guy who would play the sort of war and peace art or artist proof at fnm because it was cheaper than the real sort of war which makes no sense by by a decimal makes point. no sense <laughs> There are 50 of them. Five, zero. How many or, sort of Warren Priests are there? 2,000? 20,000? I don't know. Tons. Oh, like, yeah, but Scars and Mirrod and Standard, man, they were, totally. uh, they were I 50 know. bucks. But yeah, Artist Proofs, <laughs> they're, they're probably still undervalued. But at the same yeah. time, you have to have people that are interested in them. You can't, I mean, you, you can play with them technically, not legally, mm. but... Yeah, they're 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 just as playable on the kitchen table as anything else. But at the same time, there's only 50 of them. 
or three of them in the case of foils. I think that one of the factors there is clearly that our sleeves are opaque Mm -hmm. and our backs would have to match even if they weren't. So you don't, even if you can play with it, you can't really show it off. Like I own an Atraxa uh, proof, but (laughs) that's just because I have cool Atraxas in my collection. But unless I tell you about them, you'll never know because there's no reason for me to ever table the thing to to show you. Right. It's definitely, it's definitely collectible. and, and if you put proofs on the wall, like put them in a mini framing structure, you are again defeating the purpose because they're not noticing. They're not going to be able to what, see what you've actually done. Yeah. And it, what do they go for these days? It, they're going for more. Um, it's a, it depends. Depends on the artist. Yeah. Depends on the card. Depends on what's on the back. Well, depends on the rarity. So in some cases, actually, Wizards messed up and they sent out hundreds of, of the same artist proof. So you just never know. <laughs> Sometimes so, they didn't like, send out want, enough. You never know. If, if I want like a constructed playable standard rare artist proof from the latest set, like am I can I buy we, that? Is, for is it a $10? mythic? Is it a mythic? Are we no, talking rare. like Omnath? Rare. No. Uh, here's a here's rare. a most recent example I can think of. Uh, Dakota Coates. Dakota Coates, the guy that did the um name. slime uh secret layer. Secret layers. Yeah. Yes. So he there were six cards in that. Five cards in that. Um. Yeah, and the like the secret layer. What's the secret layer they're going for now? Sealed, fifty bucks, forty bucks, sure, something like that. Uh, so we sold the proofs for one hundred and fifty a piece, one hundred and fifty a set. Yeah, Whew. so tri- triple regular value. Sure, and so that that was good. He maybe he he sold out in an hour, so he probably could charge more. Dang, there's only fifty of them. That's the thing. So I, I used to get into artist proof. I have a, my little binder of them, but then I recognized, hey, why am I paying at the time? Why am I paying, you know, 20 bucks for this artist proof where I could pay 120 bucks for the painting? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sure. So yeah. f- final topic of the evening. Can you comment on what the impact, if any, of COVID has been on this, uh, you know, niche within the niche? I was surprised when you know for a couple of weeks in april travis and i stopped providing cards to watch because we were worried that we would be pointing people in towards a house cards that was about to tumble and in fact for several months thereafter sales were incredibly strong i had some best summer months worth of single sales i've ever seen um, on online platforms and i would imagine that in the art world given that it tends to favor those that already have significant disposable income and are gainfully employed less likely to be affected by covid that things have just kind of been trucking along is that is that a correct assumption yeah uh i mean for for example i mean just take like two examples used to be uh, like i went on a bit of a spending spree at the beginning of the year kind of like right before covid hit uh bought a whole bunch of art for around uh you know uh, twelve hundred, two thousand, and now I wouldn't be able to get those same pieces for less than you know two thousand minimum. So it's just uh, things took a good thirty to fifty percent jump at least. Um, as as and so just between you know, the whole whole market's been been up. Uh, it was super hot at uh, Double Masters, and it's just kept on trucking. Um, and like uh, I was. I, the original Magic Art store started out the year. We were our sales were double 
uh, like January, February, we doubled uh, same time last year. March, we, um, I mean, we definitely, I mean, everybody took a hit in March, but we ended up still being above last year. And, and we've just, like our, our Black Friday, we just got done with Black Friday. And I'm, <laughs> as soon as I hang up, as soon as I stop, talk, stop, stop talking with you guys, I'm going to be going out in my garage and filling, filling up the pile of orders that i printed out but uh, <laughs> uh i think we've uh, all been there yeah our sales this month were uh more than double than last year um awesome. so it's it's been it, it's if been have... it's been a hard time for a lot of people but but i mean a lot of people have been doing doing really well and that's it's 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 weird to see that but uh the market itself has been exceedingly strong i remember the same feeling uh, like march april you're like man how's this how's this who's <laughs> how's everyone gonna do it but uh you know the stimulus money came in um it's kind of run out now but we'll see how that how that uh kind of goes through uh but it's definitely uh kept things going and there's definitely still a lot of speculation going on and money's being money's coming from everywhere if i if i had to pick a market that seemed like it would be insulated from COVID, it would probably be art collecting uh but I mean, that is pretty easily explained by, you know, those the stuff that you see on Twitter that something like 40 percent of people are don't have enough money in the bank account to pay for next month's rent. Mm. But billionaires have made more money in the past six months than they had in the past three years combined type of thing. Yeah. Record unemployment with record stock market. It's really weird. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with Josh Kraus of the OMA store, Original Magic Art dot uh, com and dot store both work they both work i redirected dot com to dot store so should work gotcha thank you so much for coming on the show uh excellent slice of life uh looking at the uh, ins and outs of the magic art portion of the mtg finance world thank you josh so much for coming on with us tonight thanks for having me I had I had a blast. It was really interesting, um, and I'm I don't have more questions at the moment, but I'm sure that they would come to me. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we have our listeners pestering us. They're going to send us a bunch of questions, and then uh, we can have you on for a follow up and down the road because they're going to have all sorts of stuff they want to know about that we didn't get to. Sounds great. I'd be happy to. So, uh, Josh, final question of the evening: um, What's it like to be a pro trader? It's pretty great. <laughs> That's all, that's all we, we wanted to hear. All right. So, uh, Travis, where can people find you online, brother? Oh, I am typically on Twitter, Richard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, how about yourself? Uh, let's wait. How about you, Josh? Are you on any social media that you want to yep. plug? Uh, I'm on uh, uh, Twitter. I'm original MTG art. Uh, that's pretty much it. I'm on Facebook, but all you'll just find me on the. Oh, sorry. If, if you're looking for magic art and you're looking to uh, go to the main place where it kind of the market exists it's on facebook it's the uh mtg art market facebook group i'm one of the admins there uh and we have we have over ten thousand members in the group uh it's definitely the largest out there and there's always art that comes up on there if you're looking for art if you're interested in learning more if you're just trying to get information searching for a specific piece definitely uh that is the place that you want to start awesome uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MG, MDGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $7.99 a month or $70.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. 
once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your this your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 248. Uh, once again, Josh, we had a lot of fun. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. And James, I will talk to you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.